welcome, welcome, Internet, to the inaugural episode of the Weekly Patch, the podcast that makes the games industry a little bit better, one patch at a time, every single Wednesday. My name is Jordan, and I have the honor, the privilege, just the thing that makes me happy, of being one of your hosts alongside Kaylee. The thing that makes you happy. Zyger. What's good, everyone? What's good? And Spencer. Hello, hello. Now, the Weekly Patch is a podcast that we created because we just wanted to make the games industry better. And we didn't see it happening enough elsewhere. So we're like, we're going to make this space for ourselves. At the beginning of every Weekly Patch, we will go through a thing we call the Scrum, which is the roundup of the news from the week that we found important to us and think that it should be important to you. Now, Spencer, for those who don't know, what is Scrum? So Scrum is a software development thing that you do every day when you work on a team where you are held accountable for what work you did the day before and like what you're going to do tomorrow. But it's like a way to keep giant projects on track. Yeah, the world don't move without Scrum. What is the games industry if not a giant project? That's fair. Hey. That no one's keeping track of? Literally no one. Oh, that made me sad. Yeah. That's reality. Everyone's like, no, no, no. There's a bunch of niches individually keeping in check their own small department. You know, how good businesses operate. No organization at all. That's how it works. I love the internet. Okay. So moving on, I'm going to start off with one story that I felt was really important. And it's about Epic Games. You know that place that makes Fortnite? Is that a thing that we've heard of? Fortnite? I do know Fortnite. I know of the Fortnite. Believe it or not, they used to make the Gears of War series before they became known as the Fortnite Studio. Wait, really? Yeah, Epic Games was a Microsoft-owned or place, and then they bought their independence, and it was like, Microsoft, you can keep Gears of War, we just want independence. That's such a cute story, and then look at where they became. Yeah, what's even more important is that they make Unreal Engine, which half of AAA games are run on. That's so crazy to me! Like, I can't, I, my brain refuses to hold that information in its head until I see it in writing again. And I have to remember that Unreal is also Fortnite. Yeah, Gears of War was the game that they used to, like, showcase what Unreal can do. And that's why Gears of War was such a big deal when it first came out. So Epic Games this week on February 10th announced that they were making a browser-based app called the MetaHuman Creator to allow game developers to create high-fidelity human characters in quote-unquote less than an hour. And this is really techy and really nerdy and really specific, but it's super important when it comes to accessibility when making games. Creating 3D models is ridiculously hard and takes a ridiculously long amount of time. And anything that helps streamline that process for people, people that are not particularly tech-savvy or just need to learn one tool instead of the three or four, they'll need to learn Blender, they'll need to learn Maya, whatever it is, it makes it so that you'll be seeing 3D games from more people. You'll find that with indie games specifically, a lot of them are 2D, 2.5D, or low-poly games where it's like, they're simple 3D models that look cute or stylized, but not particularly like in-depth or realistic. And if this ends up being a thing that lets general people that aren't particularly 3D modelers create that for their games, I can see like the whole landscape of visual design for indie games changing. So I thought it was really important to to bring up. What do you think about that, Kaylee? I'm really wondering if we're going to see a We Should Talk to in like gloriously high-res 3D, sexy NB, hitting on pink-haired bartender, but you can see every strand of her freshly dyed hair. 
No comment. That's my favorite kind of comment. Yes. How about you, Zach? What you got to say? For people, since this is an audio podcast, of course, if you wanted to see like a video description of what we're talking about, The Verge actually has a really good video both on their website and I believe it's also on their YouTube showcasing what this tool looks like and seeing the renders that it creates. Oh, this is not even a game. It's a tool used to build games, but like seeing the hair animations, the like wrinkles of the person's face, seeing how it's all created in this tool is amazing and mind-blowing. We can actually put the links that we get our news sources from, because everything we say in the Scrum is sourced. We are looking at sources when we're speaking. We can uh, put those sources in the episode notes, which I'm absolutely going to be calling the patch notes from here on out, down below for each episode. So if that link that Zyger just mentioned is in the patch notes for this episode, that's because Zyger sent me the link. And if it's not, it's because you didn't. I'll make sure I send you this link later. There you go. Speaking of sources, I got this from the Gama Sutra article by Chris Kerr on February 10th. Forgot to mention that when I said it before. Thank you for reminding me. Next up, and this is from The Verge with Taylor Lyles. 2021 may be digital as ESA says it's transforming the gaming showcase. I hate that they said gaming. Why can't it just be a game showcase? When they say the Entertainment Software Association has announced that E3 2021 is happening this year and it could be going digital, according to the Video Games Chronicle. That's my reading news voice, by the way. I like it. It felt very reading news. And of course, it'll be held through June 15th to June 17th. It was more or less canceled in 2020 because of COVID-19. And the future of it was unsure. The future of all in-person events involving games is a little unclear. And they're coming out saying, we are still relevant. We are going to, we're going to make an event and you're going to watch. Spencer, what do you think about this? You brought this to our attention. Yeah, my big question is that I think, I don't think they say it in the article though, but I will find the article from last year that went through it. We think that E3 was canceled because of COVID, but there was something weird that went on with their sponsors and like the event group that was like the event planning people who were doing it because they pulled out before the event happened, right? Like they pulled out way before. Yeah, I remember a lot of different publishers like Capcom and uh, Microsoft, Sony, they all pulled out because one, the ESA, which is the company that like holds E3, has been historically known to mess up all the time. Like just in uh, 2019, when they had E3, they accidentally leaked out everyone's press emails and addresses the week before a lot of people didn't get badges. So the ESA was notoriously bad at doing their shows so a lot of companies were already fed up and like as you said were pulling out before the show was even canceled part of it was because of covid but part of it was because of the esa's handlement of their showcase yeah the thing that really caught my attention was it was the event planning group so the person whoever the esa uses to get their union reps to work with the like people at the la convention center they were like we want nothing to do with this so something went down last year. And I love that, like, in typical E3 fashion, they're like, nothing to see here. It's fine. <laughs> We're back. I think it's going to be hard to get. Sony wasn't even going to be there. We knew that way before last year. I think they think they're relevant. I don't know. If they really are? Yeah. <laughs> My whole thing with the E3 thing is just the 2020 E3, regardless of whether or not it was because of COVID or because everybody was like, we'll make our own E3 with blackjack and hookers like Nintendo did. 
if what they're referring to is we're going to do like we did in 2020, but this time it's going to be planned the whole time and not last minute, you know, all digital. I'm going to have a couple questions because in 2020, quote unquote, E3 was like three months long and it was just a sprinkling throughout what felt like years. Like, oh, that's kind of interesting or, oh, I don't care about that. But it was stretched out over so much time that it was just a constant barrage of meh. Like the thing I love about E3 and what makes E3 cool and valid justifies E3's existence is is that moment. Like I loved watching the PlayStation experience of E3 where PlayStation be like oh sign up and you could go for free to the movie theater and watch e3 in person streamed live with a bunch of other playstation nerds i did that every year they had it because it was so freaking fun to just feel the hype in the air and have everyone like all dressed up like polishing up their little trailers and being super innovative and paying live musicians which is a thing we need to do more of and just it was a fun little event and people want to shit corporate events because bah corporate but it was just you know it was a thing like oh i finally got big enough to get an e3 pass it became a rite of passage there were so many fun things about the culture of e3 built around the fact that it was short that i think a lot of it we could do a a live stream on our twitch channels so we could get that experience of, of, of experiencing things together and stuff like that but that only works if e3 is over the course four days three days if they try to spread it out again over the course of weeks i'm gonna lose my shit is it just me jordan i think my ideal e3 is one week long and everybody pulled out already so sony ain't going back they weren't gonna go back before maybe microsoft's gonna do the thing nintendo hasn't been really a part of e3 in forever so just create a space where if they they all agree we'll do the things that we want to do during this week and have a dedicated e3 channel for all the showcases that happen and that will be the you know ideal thing for me and what that gives for me is that e3 is a space where i feel a lot of gatekeeping happens who is allowed in who is able to showcase their games to developers as press as anyone that has a ticket being an all digital event means everybody can see it and everyone has the same experience and i think that's great but i also think that in a world where people have already started where companies have already started to pull out from e3 it gives e3 the opportunity to use their platform to give some eyes on some lesser known indie games the whole time like when an indie game shows up at a microsoft or sony conference it's a big deal everyone in the indie community is like oh my god how did they get that deal and it could be a make or break for that game it is the biggest single thing in games that everyone is watching so it's the biggest marketing your game could ever get and if either you could use that platform to put more indie games up then i'm all for it i'm also on team uh fuck e3 because yeah zyg is right they let a lot of press emails out what yo fuck e3 what y'all doing what i think when i'm talking about like what e3 is like or could be i'm thinking specifically because to me, this is I think we have to talk about what E3 is. Because what you're talking about is a cool event that I don't think has any resemblance to what E3 has been. And my experience as a fan is that E3 is primarily the time that all of the AAA studios tell you what to expect from them for the next few years. And personally, I would love, like, if you were like, Kaylee, what? fuck everything that's realistic but what would you make e3 i would love it if instead of getting like quarterly updates i'm like still working on this game 
bullshit. It was just once a year. E3 is the place where AAA studios let everyone know what they're working on. And that the rest of the year, everything else was all for everyone else. Just I don't need to see the big dogs and everything else. But sometime in the summer, Sony releases their directs. Nintendo releases their directs. Microsoft releases their directs. And everybody you know, who isn't big enough to fund their own, but is still considered big, maybe Ubisoft, CD Projekt Red, all of the considered like, big games that are on the cover of Game Informer, but maybe can't afford to put on a giant, massive production, the scale of which E3 is supposed to be, um, are the ones that don't do their own directs, but are like on the E3 stage on the e3 streaming stream because i don't want to hear from AAA the rest of the time i just like every year just check in and be like these games are releasing this year on this date and everything that we didn't give you a release date for tune in next year where we give you an update that's all i need that's all i need i don't need a fucking bi-weekly emails about the product status i don't what do you think spencer oh i think that everything you guys say sounds good except that 2020 has given pr people the thing you should never give them, which is like individualized attention. Like <laughs> just that's just a recipe for them never wanting to go back. You're gonna together. say power? They're never gonna want to go back together because the politics of the PR room is gonna be like, well if we go back together, my biggest metric on this day was when we dropped this video on Twitter and it blew up and everybody was talking about it. And that's the thing I think now that they've all had a taste of owning a 24 news hour news cycle, that like, I think they will be hard to step back into. You mean I have to share this day with 15 other games? <laughs> like, I know. I just want to go back to like, E3, like 2017. <laughs> I think E3 is going to be a weird space for a while. I'm thinking about the the in-person space that I did mention that I feel like is a gatekeeping space for a lot. But in in other words, it's also a space where like a lot of deals happen and a lot of people get deals, whether it's publishing deals. And that's not only limited to the AAA games or the you know triple I games. There are indie games on that show floor, and publishers, Microsoft, Sony, the big platforms do speak to people. They do get deals there. Take me back to the phrase triple I. So triple A is like the big games and triple I are those big, big indie games that are are clearly have a big budget, but they're nowhere near triple A games. But it wouldn't be the same as your 2D pixel platformer. Like Cuphead. Okay. Cuphead's a great example. Would Shovel Knight be on there? Shovel Knight's a weird space. Maybe it's weird because it's big because of Kickstarter. But then it got big afterwards. I'd, I'd probably call it Triple I as well. Yeah, their Yakub is big enough that they start publishing other games. Yeah, let's call that Triple I. But without E3 being in person, those deals don't happen anymore unless people get put on, which is a weird space for me. And speaking of being put on, our next story, straight from the Niantic or Niantic Twitter, where they announce their Niantic Black Developers Initiative, which is their commitment to providing access, opportunity, resources, and mentorship to Black game and AR developers. And I, I put this in there for one very specific reason. I really want to hear your thoughts. I'm very like, okay, hit me with it. Last year, when George Floyd was murdered by police officers, and the entire entertainment industry, the games industry included, started doing a somewhat shallow acts of solidarity with the Black community, a lot of game developers said that they were going to commit time and resources to supporting the Black community, specifically. And what does that mean? What does it mean to support the Black community as a game developer? They, No one really said a lot of things. It's been pretty quiet since then. 
It's been almost a year since this. Have, Wait, have I know. Anything. If you put BLM in your bio, or if you if you put a black, just like the black square on Instagram, but on your company's Instagram, that's supporting the black community. Did I do it? Did I win? Did I fix racism? That's like so big that racism is fixed and people aren't being killed anymore. You're welcome. I'd really like to see in the beauty community around the time that that was happening, one of the black creators, I'm trying to think which one it was now. So while you're looking that up, I brought this up because, like like I said, a bunch of studios, developers, publishers, verbally committed to doing things for black game developers, and very, very few have actually given a clear-cut idea of what that means. But Niantic has been very good about being very vocal and transparent about what they're doing. And this program is a development accelerator program that has a very clear cut timeline. It has a three month application review. It has three phases that have very specific mentorship learning opportunities and groups with specific game developers as strict rules. It has to, if it has, if it has to be a studio that has 51% ownership or control from black game developers. It's very specific about what it means and what it's trying to do. And it's still to be seen whether or not this will be a good thing or whether or not it's run well. I know some folks at Niantic that I can, that I feel like I can trust with this, but I feel like I'm going to give them a simple two claps, two claps of applause for just doing what I see to be the bare minimum right now. When the rest of the games industry, I don't feel like is doing that very much. In the beauty industry over the summer, a beauty influencer, Sharon Shooter, she started this thing that she called Pull Up for Change. And she called all of the beauty brands out from like the major ones, like you see in like drugstores and everywhere, to like indie brands to be like, tell us what the breakdown of your company is. Like, that was so cool. We want to know how many people of color, specifically black people, break it down. Don't just tell us you've got people of color in your studio. Be very specific and granular with it. Because in beauty specifically, there's a lot of Asian people that they will use to be like, well, we have 51% people of color in our thing, but we have no Hispanic or black people or anyone else, just white and Asian and some companies responded with very granular detailed breakdowns and some were doing great and some were like here we did a granular breakdown and we were shocked and here's how we're going to fix it and some people gave really shady vague super sus numbers so it was almost like there were multiple tests happening at once it was like how deep how serious did you take it how transparent were you willing to be and if your results weren't good what were you prepared to do about it all kind of happening at once it was fascinating Do we have those numbers for studios? Have studios been called to be like, here's what we're doing at all? By the public, no. I think in terms of a studio breakdown on a like racial and gender background, I think that depends on the country that the studio is founded in. Interesting. Some countries might have that data while other countries might not. So like sometimes you'll find news reports about U.S. companies that break down the leadership, like gender, when they do the gender gaps and stuff like that. Um, but I don't know about other countries' stats collection. Yeah, it's a thing we just all need to be doing better. And I, and I think this would also encourage a lot of smaller groups to look at those numbers and see. Because when you're a small game dev group or indie group, you're looking for stuff like this all the time, opportunities like this. And when you're black, you're like 
this is like a dream, right? These are the types of games that you want to make. So I just wanted to make sure that we keep an eye on this one and hopefully it ends up being at medium good level. Yeah. That's all I'm hoping for. Just medium good. And again, two claps for, you know, six months later doing something when it's not trendy. Exactly. Now, speaking of trendy, we're going to move on to free play, which is going to be the main topic of this podcast this week, where we're going to talk about our individual top 10 games of the decade. This is the first episode of the Weekly Patch. And it's important for us that y'all know what we like in games, especially modern games. We just hit 2021. so. We just finished a full decade. What are the things that were important to us? What made our game lives more important in the last 10 years? So I'd like to go around and see what inspired your individual list. Because for me, I made my list with the entire thought of what are the games that came out in the last 10 years that I think about on at least a weekly basis. Spencer, how did you make your list? It was kind of hard. Like I really made sure it wasn't games that I play to soothe myself. I have ADD and it's pretty bad and I can't take medication for it. But if you look at how many hours of a game I play, that isn't indicative very much for me because you'll look and it'll be like a thousand hours of Tetris. Well, it's because when my brain is really stressed out and I can't put things together, I will play Tetris for 20 minutes. And the like candy crushes. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I was like, pretty much like you, what I think about regularly. If I don't think about it, it's not on here. But these are games that I think about when I'm playing other games, or like, yeah, games I use to benchmark other games. I do love me some Tetris. The Tetris effect is great. And I'm not talking about the game Tetris effect. I'm talking about the phenomenon where you zoom out and sort of dissociate when playing Tetris and can only see things in the terms of the blocks dropping. Where when I'm organizing... You close your eyes and you see the blocks dropping when your eyes close. Yes, it's like an anime superpower. When I'm cleaning out my dresser, when I'm organizing things, the Tetris music starts playing and I start Tetrising things all around. It's beautiful. Kaylee, how'd you make your list? I don't feel like mine's quite the same, which I also find completely fascinating. Because some of the games on here, if you were like, oh, I think about these games every day. I'm like, oh, there are some games on here I do not think about enough, to be totally honest with you. My thought process for the list was okay we're looking at our games of the decade you know, between 2011 and 2020 for those playing along at home and so my thought process was if a genie came in and was like you could have everything you want in all realities and all multiverses but only 10 games have come out between 2011 and 2020 Every other game doesn't come out. It doesn't exist. It's dead. You can only pick 10 games to exist from 2011 to 2020. What games do you have to have? And these games are those games that I tell that genie. I never had a friend like that. Zyger, what is your list made of? Uh, The way I went about making my list was thinking about all of the games that really represented me. Games I would either play a lot of or games that i constantly go back to games that in a sense like yes make me feel happy like other games are like a game that really spoke out this game stands out in a genre even though it's similar to a bunch of games similar to uh, i have a couple first person shooters like even though these ones can be considered generic they stand out in one particular way that just blew me away or had a huge impact on me so a lot of the games are either games that spoke to me and very specific ways or games that I just always am happy to go back to at any point in time. 
True story. There's a game on Zyger's list that I had to ask him if it was real or not because I thought he was fucking with me. See if you guys can guess which one. Oh, there's going to be some of that on my list, too. (laughs) (laughs) Like, that's not a real game. What the fuck is this that you've given me right here? And he's like, no, no, he pulls it up. Oh, yeah. So that happened. Now, with that being said, I mean, we're all going to have pretty different lists. And if you were following our Twitter or Instagram at The Weekly Patch, you would have seen that we broke down what our honorable mentions are throughout the week leading up to this episode. And if you're watching this later, you can still look back. Are there any honorable mentions that weren't mentioned on Twitter that we want specifically for the podcast? Spencer, I'm throwing it to you. Yes, I have three. Rune Factory 4, just because it's, I think, one of the first dungeon crawler farm simulation games. I mean, Rune Factory, that series. And that was going to be the last one. The studio went bankrupt. The director moved on. That was going to be it. We're getting a new one. And so I wanted to make that one. Very on brand is Animal Crossing Pocket Camp. I think a lot of people thought that game was going to be microtransaction hell. And it is a little bit. I found out two days ago that I still have the recurring purchase for something in Pocket Camp. They got my ass. I haven't played that in like eight months. I played it hardcore for a very long time. And then I fell out of it when Real Animal Crossing came out. And, you know, fuck me. I've still been paying for a year. I just canceled. I still play Pocket Camp. I should too. The thing is, I found other games to fill that void after I transitioned from Pocket Camp to regular. I started playing Fire Emblem... uh, Pocket Camp. They're so soothing. The Fire Emblem one. Heroes. Fire Emblem Heroes. That's my thing with them. Passing games always just make me want to play Harvest Moon games. (laughs) This is the controversial thing because Animal Crossing New Horizons is on my five that I said earlier. Because Pocket Camp's better than New Horizons. Wow! New Pocket Camp gave everybody a taste of what if Animal Crossing had seasonal items and items based off of your villagers. And then there's no way to bring those items from Pocket Camp to New Horizons and they don't show up in New Horizons at all. So you're just like, but I really want this cute floral bridge I have from Pocket Camp. on. Pocket Camp was the first Animal Crossing game I ever played, and I got pretty far into it before Real Animal Crossing came out. That I definitely felt that, where I was like, oh, I'm starting all over again, but I just built my little camp to look so dang cute, and I've made all these friends, and I can't play with them, and yeah, it was hard. And then my third one is Mystic Messenger. I don't know Ooh. if anybody what is this? remembers I love this. Mystic Messenger. Mystic Messenger is so good. <laughs> it's a... is I think it is an otome. I think that's what they would consider it. <gasps> yeah? Haley, don't play it. It will ruin your life because I'm going to tell you oh. a very important thing about this otome. It oh, is no. based off of the real time clock. So you get text messages and you get phone calls and it's all in real time. Oh, I was like, real time clock? What game is that? Because I'm a dumb bitch. (laughs) No, it's based off your like clock. So like, I don't think of reality ever. Like reality is never the first, second or third thing on my mind. I was like, reality? Oh, real life. That's not a game. That's not the name of a game. You mean real life. Oh, I don't think about that. Yeah, no, it will ruin your life because you have to get texts. 
Do you remember when the Voltage Games used to send you emails from the guys after every couple chapters? I do remember that. It's like this, except you have to do it to play the game, and a couple of them just love to text you at 3 o'clock in the morning. Like, I do love AR games, too, though. That's dangerous. ARGs, the good old-fashioned ARG, Otome? Hell yeah. Mystic Messenger has inspired one of the games that ended up on my normal list, which we'll talk about later. But speaking of more honorable mentions and things that inspired our list, Kaylee, what's your honorable mentions, if you got them? Okay, so I thought that this would be hard. And it kind of was, but I nailed it. Anyways, so my animal mentions that I didn't count before are Teeny Titans, which is a mobile game that came out around 2017 based on the Teen Titans Go TV show. But actually, it has its own comic, the Teeny Titans comic book. And it is so fun. It has all of the voice actors from Teen Titans Go. It has this really cool, like... It's a mini fig battler and you have to collect mini figs and you play as Robin, who's voiced by Robin from Teen Titans. So it's all very, very high budget. It's made by Cartoon Network Studios when they first started getting into video games. And like it has a really long story mode. Again, fully voice acted and really funny and charming. And you get to explore the whole town. And uh, it's a great little mobile game. I used to play it on flights all the time. Super fun. Uh, my next honorable mention goes to Disgaea 5 to rectify the fact that Disgaea doesn't make any appearances on my list ever. Um, Disgaea 5 is what is weird because I have not beaten it. And that's why I originally didn't meet, make my list because I didn't want to put a game I hadn't beaten on my list. Uh, that's a personal choice. I'm not saying everybody had to follow that rule. But I keep starting it, playing it for a really long time, and getting lost having fun, like grinding my characters to unlock new classes and doing all this side stuff, that I realize I've completely forgotten the story, and then I start over, and I tell myself this time I'm going to stick to the story. And I've done that three times. I've just got like the, the new farthest I've ever gotten in the story, and I'm going to keep going. I've had to fight myself from grinding. But it's just because the gameplay is so fun and enjoyable, and the characters are so cute, and... It's one of my soothing games that you can kind of grind while you watch Drag Race or whatever. I love Disguise so much and forget the story of every single one of them because I spend 150 hours to grinding and I, maybe 20 hours to other the story, I guess. But you can customize. So like with Disgaea, you have the characters that are like the actual party and the story characters, but then you can basically custom create your entire army of like hundreds of characters if you wanted i don't know maybe it taps out at 50 whatever it's a shit ton and so you pick their names you pick their appearances for every different class that you recruit so you can kind of have two metas develop which is what i do or especially what i did with my friends when i was a preteen which is you have the story with the named characters and then you have the story then of create in your head with the characters named after you your friends and your favorite anime boys and then you just play the story characters with the story and then you're grinding you spend all your time grinding up and having pretend stories with character created characters is this where i admit i've only ever played the demo of the sky of five and that's the only time i've played any of them <laughs> Oh, it's so good. It makes me so happy. My very first time playing Disgaea 1 was shortly after it came out because my family video got a copy. So I would rent anything that had an anime cover. So obviously I ran at Disgaea. And my best friend and I played it together. And we had a character named after each of us. And then all the other characters we named after the cast of Inuyasha. 
and it was awesome and we like a whole like fan fiction play out with us and the characters of inuyasha just cruising through the disgaea world it was awesome the characters are named after people i love always die so i stopped doing that that's not permanent in disgaea yeah but they're whack Okay, so quickly moving on, my next one is really easy. It's PT. It counts. It came out in 2014. It's more impactful than most full-fledged video games, and I think that it's largely responsible for this, like, renaissance of love for the survival horror fran- uh, genre and i love horror games i love anything horror i just i'm so excited though resident evil was like oh shit they're, they're just gonna leave all that pt money on the table fuck it resident evil's a Silent hill game now you know we wouldn't have you know this nine foot six amazonian vampirus if it wasn't for pt in my opinion and i think it deserved a spot on the list for what it did for me and my people well, that's a good pick yeah. Um, lastly, I wanted to give a shout out. I'm cheating a little bit. But fuck it. We make the rules. I'm giving the last spot to One Lost Phone 1 and 2. These are games that I got in the itch.io racial justice bundle early in quarantine 2020. And they were amazing. I streamed them and being able to experience that game with a ton of people was my fucking pleasure. The, the premise is the entire game, which I think you can mobile on mobile too. And it on kind of sounds cool because the entire game is like you found a phone and it's the interface of a cell phone and you have to navigate through the interface of the cell phone to try to find a way to contact this person to let them know that you found the phone. And I don't want to spoil it because it's really good, but it ends up, both of them end up kind of into mysteries where you're learning more about this person and unlocking like so, oh they have a notes thing where they keep all their passwords because they're a dumb bitch and so you log into their facebook and you start reading their dms and you see the dms versus the text messages they get and you start seeing this narrative of a person's life develop and they're they're deeply engrossing and they're really cool and they're really fun to play you can finish it in one sitting and the older i get the more taste I have for games that you can finish in one sitting. I like to sprinkle those into my 150-hour RPGs. And I think if somebody was to ask, you know, what's a game that, you know, I just want to play, knock out in an afternoon, and feel something, it's either one, one phone, one or two. They have no relation other than the gimmicks the same. You can play them in any order. Um, both very good for different reasons. And also sometimes the same reasons. Another game that inspired my list as well. Now, Zyga, what are your honorable mentions, if you got them? All right, so one of the honorable mentions that I had is a very recent game, a game that I played only, like, two months ago, uh, Yakuza 7, Like a Dragon. It is my first entry into the Yakuza franchise, and oh my god, this game has no business being as good as it is, because originally it was developed as a brawler similar to past Yakuza games, but then during an April Fool's video where they showed the case of game as an RPG, a lot of people were like, hey, I actually like that. And the studio was like, we'll try it. If it doesn't work out, we'll go back to brawler. But if it works out, we'll see uh, what the new future of Yakuza is like. And everyone has been... everyone. Okay, let me correct myself. Everyone who has played the game has said they loved it. It has the most mainstream appeal out of all the previous Yakuza games. I'm sure anyone listening might have seen various gaming news sites talking about this game more so than they've ever talked about a Yakuza game before. 
And I think it's really telling for the future of the franchise. And I hope we see more Yakuza. We see constantly uh, they're getting extra support with Microsoft and Xbox. Uh, They're being ported to PC, which is a huge deal. So yeah, Yakuza 7, Lucky Dragon. One of my favorite games of the past decade. But right now it's just an honorable mention because I feel like it's just too new. What else you got? Up next, I have Danganronpa Trigger Happy Havoc. Specifically the PS Vita version, because that was the version I played with. And I haven't tried it on PS4, but the touchscreen stuff was like one of the few PS Vita games that I actually used the touchscreen in and didn't mind it. Vita means life. Because Vita is life. It's also a really good visual novel that's not super time-consuming. I was able to get the platinum in the five days I played it, I think. Yeah, Diggin' Rapa Trigger Happy Havoc is a fun little game, even though it's about murdering your teenage friends. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh no. And last but not least, Tetris, because it is Tetris. Like Which Tetris? You can't just say Tetris. Kaylee, all Tetris is Tetris. No. Yes. You have yeah. to say a platform or Tetris Effect or Tetris 99 or Tetris for the Game Boy Original or you have Tetris is... Mario. You have I... to pick your favorite Tetris. My favorite Tetris is Tetris for the iPod. Back when the iPod only used the wheel. I oh. love playing Tetris with that wheel. That thing fucking slapped. I'm surprised. I did, I did not like that version of Tetris. I had a square iPod Nano that generation, and it was tight. Like, rectangle, but it was almost a square. You remember that generation where I had the video? Yeah. yeah. I, I believe it's called Tetris Access. It was on the Nintendo DS. That was probably the one I've played the most of. Same. And, yeah. There's also Tetris Ultimate, which is published by Ubisoft. And that one is fine, but at launch it was broken, and it was a shame. See, this is what I... Everyone asks, oh, no, all Tetris is the same. No, you have a preferred Tetris platform. Now I usually play Tetris on my phone, but it just doesn't feel the same. I want my rolly ball. So that's why I don't play Tetris anymore. But I swear I used to be good at it. I do love me some Tetris 99. And Zagar, I just want you to know that if I wasn't on this podcast today, you would have had the best honorable mention list. Kudos to you, person from my heart. Well, You're then. so full of shit. Mine's perfect. This is fine. <laughs> Uh, my honorable mentions are short and sweet my one thing that i put in my honorable mention came out in 2012 and it is the one game that i played the most in the year 2016 a little bit of 2017 a little bit of 2015 and that game is called tinder uh tinder god damn it the greatest (laughs) dating app the, the most influential dating app that gamified dating in a way that swipe left swipe right Where's the RNG? Is it gonna be? You're gonna get a match? Ooh, it's a match two games. It's all the things that every single dating app has mimicked afterwards, and it's the it, it made dating a game. Is it a good game? Is it a toxic game? Yes and yes. And that's <laughs> my <laughs> that's my other mentions. All right, that was pretty good. I guess that was I pretty guess good. I loved that. Damn it. Yeah, you're welcome. So the way we're going to go with our actual lists is that we're each going to rotate saying one at a time, and then the next person goes, and so on and so forth, until we all have reached our ten. So we're going to start with Spencer. Let's set the tone for the list. What is your first top ten game of the decade? No, I do want to just be clear. We're going to go starting emotionally with what's our tenth. Is this clear? Or is that what it is? Yeah. Yeah, sure. That was my understanding of it. 
right don't hold us to necessarily i ranked these very shortly before we started recording i mean you can hold me to mine mine are hard hard solid rank firm yeah starting with the one that barely made the cut all the way to the best team of the decade yep hit me with it the one that barely made the cut is a tiny 3ds game called fantasy life it is a level five game i usually really enjoy level fives games it came out in 2012. It's a role-playing, like, simulation game, though. And the thing about it is, is it, like, was just let you do whatever. If you want to be a, if you want to be a mage right now, go do that until you're bored of it. And then you can pick another class and do that. Or do you want to be a tailor? You can be a tailor. That could be your whole thing. And I've actually never finished the game because I loved the world of the village people and, like, the people you interact with so much that I didn't want it to be over because you can go and grind the content but they stop talking to you like the people in the town stop like having things to say to you or do anything with you so i was just like well i could never finish this game because i don't my best friend and i got to like year 24 in harvest moon 64 so i feel that yeah i was like i can't can't go anymore because i don't want to lose this very charming little world and it's not like magical and like it's not anything super special but it was just like a combination of like tone and freedom in an rpg that was just like really fun to play for just hours handhelds are magical systems i wish that handheld was still a thing the switch is kind of a handheld but it's not it's not and i miss these handheld experiences that we used to have it I miss it so much. Kaylee, what's your number 10? Aw, that was so sweet, though. Okay, so for my number 10, I, I liked the phrasing barely made the cut. Sort of what I was thinking when I was quickly organizing, like, which ones were, like, almost replaced with an honorable mention or, like, almost, uh, I don't know what's the word, is swappable, whatever. And for me, that was Overwatch. Uh, Overwatch came out in 2016. I don't think I need to talk a lot about what it is. But for me, Overwatch is on this list because I had never played a first-person shooter before Overwatch. It was the first game to tempt me to learn how to play an FPS. Not that I still, not that I learned. I still have no idea how to shoot. That's why I play Moira. Like, I don't have to aim shit. But I loved Overwatch. I'm stoked for Overwatch 2 because the thing that would make Overwatch perfect is if it was single player. So, and had a story. So I'm very excited for that. I would go to a Blizzard World or just an Overwatch theme park. I love the bright colors and complex kind of Asimov story Um, it's just great fun it's the only time i can get on multiplayer it's for some reason one of the few things that really has its like hooks in me in that regard just i love it would you say that overwatch is your first person shooter (laughs) (laughs) i'm hilarious god damn it aren't i aren't i a hoot zagger what's your 10 so this is a game that, like, like before, it's like, oh, barely made the list. I almost replaced this game with Yakuza Like a Dragon, but my number ten is Portal Two, because Portal Two, I'm Ooh. sure many people know this game. It is an amazingly designed like platform puzzle platformer where you create portals, you go through the portals that like you could pop, jump into one, pop out of the other, and you have to navigate this crazy laboratory that's 
mostly designed to kill you. And the story in Portal 2 is amazing and charming. The characters are all unique, but like completely fleshed out in a way that most narrative games nowadays don't typically tend to flesh out. And the design of Portal 2 stands out above a lot of other puzzle platformers because it's a game that like gives you so much freedom to test out various different things and play with the gameplay mechanics to do things that the developers might not have intended for you to do, but you were able to do it anyway. It's like, oh, congratulations, you did this. Portal 2 is one of the funniest video games ever made, and I stand by that. I turn on like full walkthroughs of Portal 2 and just let them play when I'm cleaning the house sometimes. Because that whole opening intro with Wheatley or the GLaDOS boss battle, GLaDOS boss battle, and everything that comes after it fucking hysterical like i just love how funny portal 2 is i will never get old of laughing at the little personality spheres everything about that game makes me happy it's a good pick it was my first person shooter in that i don't play fps games (laughs) fps games give me motion sick almost universally and portal 2 was the first and only one so far that has not done that so kudos to that game because it's a great first person game it's a great puzzle platformer it changed the it changed the way both of those things worked. Of all games to not make you motion sick, I can't believe that a first-person platformer did that. Like, that's so impressive to me. They knew what they're doing down at Valve. I I mean, they make a lot of money. I wish they'd make a lot of games. Hey, instead of absorbing indie studios and then ditching the games that star women of color... Oh, I was just going to say the same thing. Yes. Spice, spice, spice. I'm sure those people are I want to be nice. like that salt guy, you know, the guy with like the salt sprinkling down his arm, but I want it to be like paprika, like just spice, little spicy, little, little jalapeno peppers. Da-da-da-da. Just sprinkle some spice over everything. Wasn't paprika the child of salt and pepper on Blue's Clues? You so mean that, their that... first child? Because they got three. They also have nutmeg and ginger, bitch. That's right. Three. Also, shout out to Blue's Clues for being one of the first, like, things in public entertainment to be like, you know what? We're not gendering colors. Blue the dog is a girl. And Blue's boyfriend is the pink dog magenta. Suck a dick. And I really liked that. I was thinking about that today. And my number 10 game is Blue's Clues for... No, it's not. Um... (laughs) I was going to make that trip if you did it. Oh, that would have been a perfect transition if it was real. I'm so sad. Uh, I, I kind of wish I did it now. My number 10 is a game called Sports Friends, which came out on the PlayStation 3 in 2013 by the developer, the Copenhagen development group called Digut Fabrik. I, I hope I said that right. I, I don't know. And the reason I chose Sports Friends is because it's a compilation of small party games that show up, that make use of very, very different um, things. And I chose it for one game called Johann Sebastian Joust, or J.S. Joust. Okay, that's pretty good. Which I was going to make a, I think you're talking about Wii Sports Resort joke, but Johann Sebastian Joust is pretty good. It's an amazing game, and it's great because it's the only video game that I can think of that is a contact sport, where you need to touch other people. You need to push them or move them or do something so that you can win. So the way that JS Joust works is that you are holding a PlayStation Move controller or a PlayStation 3 controller, and you're physically walking around to the tune of a Johann Sebastian Bach concerto. And 
as the music speeds up, you can move faster and push people. The goal is to make someone move faster than the beat of the song so that they can be knocked out. And when I say move, I'm talking about people in their physical bodies. And I have never played a game like that since. It's like literally changed the way that I saw sports games or rhythm games. And that's why it is my number 10. Now, this isn't my barely made the cut thing. To be frank, the only things that are ordered on my list are my one, two, and three. And that's for a good reason. Everything else. Well, my one, two, three, and seven are in where they need to be. Uh, (laughs) So specific. (laughs) I love that. Now, that actually, the way that you described that game reminded me of the emotions that one, two, switch gave me. Did you play one, two, switch? I did not play one, two, switch. I would really like post pandemic when you come over for the giant party, we'll throw post pandemic, like post everyone's vaccinated and it's been a minute. Um, we should all play one, two switch. And I would love to see your thoughts on it. One, two switch, JS Jousten, a third game. I'm down. Say. All right. So moving on, we're going to go with Spencer's number nine. My number nine is, uh, everything. Mm. It's a, Double fine game. I thought you were cheating for a second. I was like, you can't just no. put everything. No, it, it's everything. Yeah, no, it's a double. It was produced by. It was published by Double Fine. It was. I think it's a three-person team. It's artist David O'Reilly is like the guy who's like the main person behind it. But it's a very strange game. I don't like. I. It's like. How do you describe this game? You literally can be everything. And it has a lot of Alan Watts talking in it, philosopher Alan Watts talking in it. And you start out as like an animal and then you can like move into things that are smaller than you. Oh, God. So like you start out as an animal, but then you like move into a snail and then you move into a bug. And then by the time you get done with the like moving down into small parts or like subatomic like pieces and then it like starts to let you go the other way and at one point in time you can be like a whole solar system and like the game was just like it's not very long it's like a couple hours but I think about that game a lot like just in that I don't know how it got made I think your description of that game is how I assume it got made because I think your description in my brain was very comparable to like someone on psychedelics explaining their last experience. And that's what I feel like when I play that game. So I think that's what happened when they made it. This is a game I've never heard of, but I'm glad that this all tracks because that means that I'm getting all of this perfectly. (laughs) Yeah, it's bizarre. Yeah, no, it's like, I don't think I'll ever. And I don't think like... I definitely haven't, like, physically held the controller like I was watching my boyfriend play it because he's a big Alan Watts fan. So he was like, Alan Watts is in a video game? Yes, <laughs> I need that. And I was like, but it was just weird because you're, like, like, at one point in time, you're, like, a bear, and then you're, like, a snail. And I was just, like, and, like, seeing the world shift from being, like, that to the other in such a weird way was, like, yeah, I just... I don't think it'll be a video game I ever forget. That's so beautiful. That's such a beautiful way to say that. I love when people have such strong feelings about indie games because I hope that the things that I make someday can have that effect on people. And speaking about having an effect on people, Kaylee, what's your number nine? That was such a wholesome transition. I love that. Um, I was trying to see if I 
fix a fuck up i change my list slightly but i give up i'm just gonna say that for the record i regret not putting tokyo jungle on my honorable mentions i thought it was older than it is it came out in 2012 so it obviously should have been somewhere but we need more games like tokyo jungle i wish that it was ported to more things i wish it got a sequel i want more tokyo jungle that just as an aside anyways number nine number nine on my list is not Tokyo Jungle, but it's kind of similar. Not. It's Injustice 2. Uh, Injustice 2 came out in 2017. And I got to be honest, I was in a five-year relationship with a guy that is, or was, I guess, obsessed with fighting games. Every waking moment was telling me about just the different, you know, like the wake-up frames for this move versus the invincibility frames for this move versus just everything you could fucking possibly nitty-gritty about fighting games. I lived in just Maximilian playing from our TV off YouTube 24-7, just constant and even with that when it came to actually playing fighting games every fighting game would have like one character i would kind of have fun playing so i have like one character that i would play when my boyfriend would be like oh play with me but that's as far as it really went as far as playing it was always like oh hey play with me like oh hey we need to round up the numbers in this tournament and i could usually get like a round or two in a tournament but that was that's basically it until injustice 2 there was something about Injustice 2 being like, hey, fighting games are cool, but what if we add fashion that did it for me? Oh, yeah. I suddenly had, I played with Harley Quinn and I, cause I needed to unlock that bubblegum pink and blue outfit. And then I was playing with Poison Ivy and I had to unlock everything with her. Catwoman had a skin so cute. I decided I had to start playing with Catwoman. Black Canary I adore. So of course I had to get all of her costumes and I had to play Black Canary constantly. And the loot box system that rewards you for playing not for spending money it was the first fighting game that i was playing constantly by myself like my boyfriend would go to work and come home and i was my day off and i had spent the day playing injustice and i'm like look at this one that i unlocked and look at this and i got this far and i beat these challenges in the online thing and with fighting games my problem was again you know i don't like playing multiplayer and because when you start something you're bad at it and being a woman in games it's just extra i feel like i'm letting down my entire like gender when i'm bad at a game publicly and so i just have never been one to be like oh let me hop on overwatch solo and play or let me go into random online matches in a fighting game because then if i lose like oh of course you did you're like you know, it reinforces all these horrible negative stereotypes but if you never get to play you never get to develop the muscle memory that makes you be good and so the stereotypes become self reinforcing and so like more girls would be good at games if more girls weren't shamed for starting and being bad you know what i mean and injustice 2 really gave me so many different varied outlets which to be fair netherrealm had been growing in my heart because they have always been a studio that gives you like your fighting game with extra they were the ones that made it popular to do a really in-depth storyline in your fighting game like a story mode um and always fucking around you know like mortal kombat chess and mortal kombat karting and mortal you know they have always been like, let me give you a little extra bang for your buck, even when everything else is kind of nonsense. And I think the Injustice 2 was the pinnacle of that, and it really did a great job making it easy for tons of people who never played fighting games to suddenly be really into a fighting game. I like Injustice 2 a lot. I don't love it, because love is a strong word that only belongs to one fighting game in my heart. But it's everything you said. NRS just revolutionized. They are the studio that is revolutionizing fighting games right now. They're always doing Chicago. these things. Chicago. That being said, terrible crunch culture. They're really bad oh, at it. Yeah. They wreck their people mm-hmm. to the ground. 
can't cannot mention that. And midway this was a whole fucking can of worms. Like the trait system in Justice was amazing. I played my Green Arrow, and I also played Catwoman because she moved real cool, and it was real fun. It was like that was like that was a game where I just. I both love and hated the story. It did my favorite thing in DC and my least favorite thing. It's like my favorite thing is I like it when Superman's bad. A lot of people don't. I do. I didn't like their handling of Wonder Woman. No, Wonder Woman's really bad in that game. Most of the women are bad in the story in those games. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) And Batman releases a drug into the world that makes everyone a little superpowered. What are you thinking? What are you thinking? That's dumb. That's just dumb. The Injustice comic book is one of the best comic series for anybody looking for a starting point into comics. I always recommend the Injustice comic book line. I think it's an amazing, like, AU. Um, And you're right. I feel like Injustice 1 story made me cry at two different points. Um, So Injustice 2 had a lot of looking up to do, like, living up to do, rather. And I don't know if it quite pulled that off, but I had so much fun doing literally everything else that now I'm like, maybe I should play some Injustice after we record this. Fuck. And before we move on, I just need to say that I will never forgive Injustice and Warner Brothers for not, and DC, for not including Static Shock in Injustice 2. He belonged in there. God, it would have been so cool! I don't know why he wasn't there. So cool! What what are y'all doing? What are y'all doing? Now, so I I can give some time for me to cool off after thinking that thought, because actually it does heat me up. Zyger, what is your number nine? So my number nine is a game that when I first played it, I thought it was going to be like a generic Call of Duty bullshit like clone, and it turned out to be the exact opposite in every way possible, and is amazing. The game is called Spec Ops: The Line. Now, a lot of people haven't heard of this haven't heard of this game because it is a I would say double A game for at the time it was made. And if you look at the cover art for this game, it looks like a generic Call of Duty clone. There's a guy, bald, he has a gun, he's standing in a silhouette of himself, there's dust and destroyed cities in the background and whatnot. It looks like a generic game, but when you play the game, it does things with its story that really fucks with the player in a sense because the story framework for this game is based on a novella back from 1899 called heart of darkness which was later depicted in a movie called apocalypse now which i zyger yes apocalypse now is one of the most famous i was trying to stop you before you got to this point because i knew you're gonna make a zyger apocalypse now is one of the most famous movies of all time you don't have to say a movie called apocalypse that's like saying there was this movie called the godfather like i was gonna say apocalypse now which i'm sure more people have heard of for the game I couldn't let you. I couldn't let you say it. I couldn't let you publicly be like, I don't really know what Apocalypse Now is, but you guys have probably heard of it. I, I couldn't let it stand. Just pretend you've heard of it. It's Apocalypse. You've never heard of Apocalypse Now? No, I have. That's what I'm saying. I have heard of Apocalypse Now, and more people have heard of it. But when I was playing, Spuc- get out of my house. When I was playing Apocalypse, Spuc- I didn't expect it to be like that. <sighs> also, I I hate to break it to you, but Spec Ops: The Line in my understanding of entertainment, is on every single top 10 gaming list of all time for biggest twists in gaming. I don't know anybody who doesn't know Spec Ops The Line, specifically because of the twist ending. 
that's the thing. Whenever I talk with my friends about Spec Ops Online, almost no one has heard of it. A lot of the gaming press and like people who do those type of articles online have heard of Spec Ops Online and always bring it up in conversation. Really? Yeah. Okay. Maybe that's just my perspective. Okay. I take it back. Uh, that's fair. Uh, and I'm glad you pointed out because Spec Ops Online received tons of critical reviews, like great reviews. I think it got a 10 in some places. But it's one of those games where all the reviewers loved it but the general audience just never picked it up. And it went as like an underrated game for the longest time. If you watched Apocalypse Now, you know the basic framework of the story. And the way that Spec Ops Line handles it, it makes you, the player, responsible for a lot of the choices. And throughout the game, you start to get that sense of, wait, are we the bad guys here? And it's just that like mental fuckery that the game does to you throughout the entirety of the game. And your NPC friends are, like, questioning all the choices you are making. Hey, should we really be doing this? We have to. Those are our orders. We have to do this. We're in the right. We're in the right. And the characters convince themselves that what they're doing is the right thing to do. And they try so hard to make the player feel that. But then once you start to see the consequences of the actions you have done, I don't know if what I did was right, but I have to keep going because that's what the game is telling me to do. And by the end of the game, and it's multiple different endings, it's like just this like mind blowing like twist and like realization like I could have done this so differently, but at the same time you couldn't because the game doesn't let you, of course. Like it's just this super fun story, not fun but like interesting story in Spec Ops: The Line that just resonated with me so hard and like rethink how game design should be done in a sense because it. In some cases, it does allow players to make specific choices. I think Spec Ops The Line is a game that should be coming up a lot more as, or if, I guess I hope I say, uh, development on Six Days in Fallujah ramps up. And I think that like what I'd like to do, honestly, I'm going to say this on the inaugural episode, is I already have a couple people that I'd like to reach out to about being on an episode when Six Days of Fallujah is out, if it ever comes out, or after it's canceled. So basically so that there's no NDAs or anything in the way to talk about that game and games like it. And I think that getting people on that topic also getting their views on this game would be very interesting because and that would probably involve more spoilers so i'm just going to say this now you have until six days in fallujah is canceled or out to play spec ops the line before we spoil it on this podcast listener call on that shot now oh yeah <laughs> speaking of spoiling i am gonna spoil everything that i want to talk about in all the games that are on my list i'll give you warnings beforehand also spec ops the line like probably gonna go down in history as the best game with the worst title yeah yeah it's a rough one it makes it sound like it's a tom clancy spinoff of a tom clancy game it's a spinoff of the spec ops franchise which has nothing to do with this game yeah Yeah. it's like they just really wanted to call it the line i feel like maybe we should try to like normalize calling it the line for short and see if that makes it cooler to people (laughs) <laughs> no, that's not, that sounds like when Radio Shack wanted to start going by as the Shack. Yeah, but oh, Shack's a stupid word. Line's a cool word. It's like, ooh, minimalist. The line. What kind of line? The line between good and evil? The line between life and death? The line between right and wrong? We don't know. Maybe all of them. Maybe none of them. The line between sanity and insanity? The line between genius and crazy? I don't know. I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure the line is like a bougie place in Austin. So if you're in the Austin area, and if that is accurate, let me know. God damn it. 
All right, Jordan. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, so move, Save us. To move on. So um, my number nine is Mighty number nine. No, it isn't. That name. That game isn't. Oh, my God. List. Damn it. That would have been great. You should have rewritten your entire list to be punchlines for our jokes. Yes. That's why I'm just saying them as they come up in my brain. Um, right. My number nine is a game called Light Shift, and it's developed by Control Movie, which is a developer slash platform and published by Wales Interactive in the year 2016. Uh, Late Shift is an interactive movie, branching narrative game, however you want to call it, an FMV. It came out in 2016. I'm saying this a second time because 2016 is a year that is before 2018, 19, whatever. That's two years, three years. Whenever Bandersnatch came out. Oh, I see what you're doing. It's predates Bandersnatch for people who think it doesn't. And it, it, it's a good it's a good example of the difference between marketing budgets because it is a lovely branching narrative action thriller movie Ooh. that has several endings. It's all wonderfully acted. It's all in in the UK, similar to Black Mirror, Bandersnatch, but. It's a smaller game, and it definitely had critical acclaim in the film festivals that it went to. But Bandersnatch came in and had the Netflix and Black Mirror funding and became this big deal. But in my opinion, it's it's not as good as a game because it made some mistakes that Late Shift did not do. Similar, like, example, when you make a choice in Bandersnatch, you have to wait for the time to run out for that choice to do anything. And that's just bad gameplay experience. It's a lesson that we've learned in choice-based narratives a very, very long time ago, back in Mass Effect 1, when we were doing that stuff. And to see it come out like almost a decade later and make those kind of like rudimentary mistakes it, it, and get a claim that this game, Late Shift, was not doing is it's fant- it's weird. I think about Late Shift every day. It's the exact type of game that I want to be making in this world. I want to make interactive movies. And it is the template. It has been the template for a long time of what I wanted to do in the games industry. Now, other things may have done it better since then. What do you think might have done it better like what's the best version of like fm i've never played an fmv even though they're super my type of game so like if i wanted to play like the best fmv i could possibly get my hands on what would i play that's super hard to answer because there are so many fmv games that do so many that have a completely different but you i feel like you know me you know what i mean you know like how scary i can handle versus like how much hentai i enjoy you know like what what would you recommend me i'm asking you as a friend i don't know how much hentai you enjoy but that being said this is great no um i think you would enjoy a game called her story which is oh i have that i just haven't played it i played some of it at the pop culture museum in seattle because it's they have like a video games wing there with some video games you can play and that's one of them now, I don't know what the studio that that game was being credited as, but I do know that the main developer was Sam Barlow. And you would like that game because you're a person that likes going and taking deep dives and reading a ton of information and lore and stuff. And that is what that game is. That is an FMV game worth a lot of reading about lore, about different things that are going on to solve this kind of mystery that's happening. I will say to go back to my honorable mentions, a lot of people that watched me play One Lost Phone 1 and 2 or had just already played it do say it plays a lot like her story. And I love those. So I feel like you're probably right. 
And, and I think that's I think that's an accurate thing. But yeah, everyone, play Late Shift. It's usually really expensive. It's on everything as far as I know. It's on Nintendo Switch. It's on Xbox. It's on PlayStation. It's on PC. It's on mobile. It's a very easy thing to access. And if you don't agree with me, then you're wrong. <laughs> I'm right. You're wrong. Uh, let's move on to Spencer's number eight. My number eight is a game that I will bully Nintendo to continue to make these games for Switch, but it is the, what is this, the third entry in the Style Savvy series. Style Savvy gets a bad rap because it's girly and it's about owning a fashion shop, so it never gets any coverage. Like those games. What if you're anti style savvy because you can't spell the word savvy and that upsets you? <laughs> I'm asking for a friend that's bad at spelling. You can go by the name. There's, you can go by the European name, New Style Boutique. Two. That's pretty cute. Yeah, we get the worst name of all of it because it's like girls mode in Japan. And they're like, yeah, it's style savvy. And I'm like, I don't I would totally play a game called Girls Mode. Are you kidding me? Right? So you own... This one is wild because it is bizarre. Like, it's, like, the most bizarre of these. Like, at one point, like, you take over your grandmother's, like, fashion shop. But, like, you also have a dollhouse you can live in. Like, you shrink down and are, are, like, living in a dollhouse. And it was just, like, out of nowhere. Not like this game has anything magical in the series before that, or after that, for that matter. It literally is just this one thing where it's, yeah, now you have this magical dollhouse you can live in. In an attic. I would love that. But, yeah, I just think this game never gets... It doesn't get any... Like, this whole series never gets any respect, because it's a girl... Misogyny. Yeah, it's literally a game made for fashion which has been made to be lesser because like girls like it girls like it yeah what do you like so that's it i love it it's great you can put together outfits you can make your store several different themes and i'm always like can i make it look as lolita as possible in here and that's what i do every time i just want every game to have as detailed fashion as these games do i have played a little bit of them because i saw it in the games library once and it's lovely it's lovely. And speaking of lovely, let's move on to Kaylee's number eight, because it's a game that I consider to be lovely. Oh, I thought it was like, speaking of lovely, let's move on to Kaylee. And I was like, oh, oh, okay. I can't give you too many compliments. Too many compliments one episode. It's, in, it's insincere. When was the first one? Wait, I'm, wait, wait, go back. <laughs> when you're I'm editing fine. later, you hear it again. I will. Okay. Uh, That's what I said. I'm like, you know, I'm going to edit this later. Like, okay. Anyways, my number eight went to the only MMO this decade I have been able to get into, and I've gotten into it pretty hard, uh, and that's Final Fantasy XIV, which some people might be writing in right now, like, hello at theweeklypatch.com or whatever, just like, pause. Final Fantasy XIV originally came out in 2010. Yes. Which is earlier than the cutoff. Yes. But Final Fantasy XIV sucked major dick and it closed in 2012. A Realm Reborn did not launch until 2013. This is the new game completely. It counts. 
So anyways, Final Fantasy fourteen. Honestly, it reminded me a lot of what you were saying before, uh, Spencer, with Fantasy Life, where I was just like, oh my god, when I'm playing Final Fantasy fourteen, I have a giant bunny sex lady that just is a monk, but then also sometimes I spend way too much time being a tailor, and then I become a gourmet chef, and then I'm a samurai, and then I'm back to being a monk, like, all in one life. I just like, mm, I think I'm a tailor now, and then I go off, and I like, you know, tailor for the fucking traveling prince and then i'm like and now i will cook a gourmet meal for celebrities okay back to murdering things with a sword it's great it's awesome the character creator is one of my favorite character creators in any video game the whole thing is gorgeous did i mention i'm just i'm just like a 10 foot tall sex bunny it's great it makes me very happy it's a good game you guys it's a good game that's getting new DLC soon. Yeah. And that's the best part is that Final Fantasy fourteen is an MMO that you can play. If you're like, hmm, I would like to play a single player Final Fantasy game, play Final Fantasy fourteen. Like you get mixed with a random party to do like instances and stuff, or you could do them with your friends. But aside from that, you can either be with your friends the whole time and do like a Final Fantasy fifteen, but with your three buds, or you could just fuck off and be totally alone and then just go into a random group whenever you need to do an instance and live your whole life in solitude like I do. I don't like talking to strangers. It makes me anxious. And on that note, we're going to move on to Zyger, a person that's never made me anxious a day in my life. Oh, that's very sweet of you. So, Oh, sure, he gets the compliments. That's fine. <laughs> that is fine. Just like my number eight pick, which is either my most played or second most played game of 2019, Fire Emblem Three Houses. Now, Fi- Fire Emblem Three Houses is one of my like top three video game franchises. I have played this franchise since I was probably 12, is when I picked up my first one, which was the Path of Radiance on GameCube. But anyway, Three Houses, phenomenal story. It has various forms of replayability in that the first, I would say, two-thirds of the game is about the same every time you replay it, but it's that last section that's really like choice-driven and branches out because there are three houses, obviously. But yeah, this is a game that I played a shit ton back in 2019. I'm sure everyone else here has either heard of it or played it as well. But Zyger played the entire Red Route without realizing that he was falling in love with a Nazi that was the bad guy. That's my wife you're talking about, ma'am. Please stop. Yeah, but at least you recognize that she's a Nazi. He legitimately thought she was the good guy the entire playthrough. He legitimately earnestly thought she was the good guy the whole time. Good and bad is relative. (laughs) <laughs> oh no oh no yeah it was bad i was playing through the blue lions watching him genocide on accident and i was like psyker you just did a genocide and he's like yeah probably for a reason though maybe <laughs> she's got such pretty hair <laughs> yeah those pigtails made him not even question the murder she didn't have pigtails she has the little pigtails in her baby picture. Yes, she has the little. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. Okay, I see what you mean. I see what you mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. First off, I didn't love her. I loved Dorothea. Dorothea. I'm not saying this right. Dorothea. Dorothea. Yes, she was the best girl. Obviously, he just likes big tits. You guys just ignore him. <laughs> wow. Wow. Where's the live? The Zyger? I'm not gonna deny, deny anything. I've seen your mouse pad. 
Oh, oh no. Oh, we're not talking about that. Yeah. <laughs> but if you get with her, she doesn't get with what's his name? The like the, the guy with blue hair? No. I no, tried to get her with somebody else, but she ended up getting with the sleepy boy. The little oh, cute bye boy. Completely organically. I wasn't even pairing them. I saw I try to go as long as possible without shipping anybody. I like to see who they like pair themselves with if everyone's best friends with everyone. Uh and there was some I had kind of shipped her with Felix and I had shipped um his name starts with an L. I don't know why I can't think of it. We all know he's a cute little What? Was it Lloyd? No, that doesn't sound like a fantasy name. That sounds like a dumb name from Tales of Symphonia. Uh, Lin Linhart. Linhart, Lin- yeah. Linhart, thank you. I was like, no, it's way more fantasy. Linhart. I kind of shoved. Linhart got with Dorothea, and Felix got with Annette. And when I was playing through everyone's CBAS routes, um, I had actually really liked Annette and Linhart's story developing, and I was kind of shipping them. And same with Felix and Dorothea. I was kind of like, oh, they're kind of cute, actually. Um, and they ended up flipping partners from who I thought they'd be partnered with. So when the epilogue came, my jaw dropped. And then Mercedes got with that little boy Zyger likes with his freckles. Oh, Ash? No. Yes, Ash. That little cutie. Yeah. Ash milfed it up with Mercedes, which I was not expecting at all. It was great fun. It's a good game. Yeah, Fire Emblem, great game. That's why it's my number eight. I liked it better than uh, the 3DS games that came out after Awakening, the Fate series. Well, um, I only recognized Fire Emblem Fates Revelations as a game. Personally, the other two were like AU fan fictions in my mind. I feel that. Fire Emblem Three Houses, the game where Lloyd is not a fantasy name, but Mercedes is, apparently. Moving on to my number eight. Objectively, the best game that we're going to talk about today. Not quite, but it's a good one, and it's called Boss Monster. I thought you were going to say we should talk. (laughs) (laughs) Boss Monster is a card game. It is a tabletop game. Um, because we said the top 10 games of the ge- decades, not video games. No, 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 This is a video game podcast. We talked about this. Oh, no, it's a podcast that exists in the realm of games. We talked about this, and you were like, yeah, I'm going to do it anyways. But for the record, we talked about this, and I did... You can't say we didn't talk about it. You can say that you chose to ignore it, but I did say, when you're like, I'm going to do a card game, I was like, well, this is supposed to be, like, our top ten video games. I didn't do, like, Call of Cthulhu as my favorite tabletop RPG. You know, I'm just saying, we did have this talk. For the record, it is on Tabletop Simulator, which is And that's what Zyger said last time. He's like, he could just say Tabletop Simulator, and I'm like, then say Tabletop Simulator! I just want to say that those uh, conversations were not recorded, but this one is. So this is the only one that exists in my brain. Boss God Monster He's right. came out in 2013, and it's from uh, Brotherwise Games. I think it's just a, stu- a small studio of three brothers. And it's a dungeon-building card game. Two to four people come together. They get their own special boss monster. Mine's is like a little sexy Sedusa. I said Sedusa because I like Powerpuff Girls, and that's better than Medusa. And your goal is to... Create a dungeon, a side-scrolling 2D dungeon, strong enough to kill the most heroes before they kill you. I like that. That's cool. Boss Monster has a ton of expansions. The first one's a little limited, but once you get into the other expansions, it becomes a really great experience. But I wanted to make sure I mentioned it because it's probably my favorite, like, easy pick-and-play, small, two-to-four-player, like, tabletop game. And it has a beautiful design on the box where the box is designed like a Super Nintendo cartridge. <gasps> That's super cute! 
And the expansions are smaller boxes, so they're designed like Game Boy Advance boxes. <gasps> no, shut the fuck up. They get it. That is too cute. So you're going to bring this to our quarantine party where we play all of the video games that we talked about earlier. You took the thought right out of my head. That's exactly what I was going to go next. I know. That's why I had to say it. Now I get the credit. Right. Speaking of credit, let's go to Spencer with their number seven. Seven? That's we're up to. We're up to seven. seven. It's it's a lucky number. Uh, My number seven is Mass Effect 3. It's the best Mass Effect. And down. I mean... It is. It's the best Mass Effect. Like, is that 2017 or 2016? If it was, was it earlier than that? 2014? It was way earlier than that. It's way earlier. It's 2012. 2012, yeah. 2012. Jesus, that was 20. That checks out. Like, where I was living in 2012 is definitely where I experienced that game. But I cannot believe that game was almost a decade ago. Holy crap. Oh my god, okay, I'm sorry. That took me a fucking second. This game was on both me and Versify. Yeah, the 3 is the best one. Also, the multiplayer in Mass Effect 3 was good. It, it it just was. I'd rather play that multiplayer than grind on dumb planets searching for resources any day of the week. And moving forward, we're <laughs> going to go on to, to Kaylee's number 7. I was trying to think of something clever for my number 7, but it just so happens that my number 7 is also my favorite Fire Emblem game of this decade, and that's Fire Emblem Awakening. I loved... So, like, Fire Emblem has done this before, for people who don't know, because a lot of those games weren't translated. Fire Emblem has done the whole do a time skip and have the kids of the first generation be playable, but usually it's just, like, a legitimate 20-year time skip, and a lot of times the first round, like, the parent characters die, and that's why you start playing as the kids. So, I loved Fire Emblem Awakenings, like, super optimistic, weirdly happy, considering it starts with an already ruined society entire vibe where it fit the kids in in a really cool organic way where they got to play with the parents and you got to treat it like a dating sim which i love but it's also a strategy rpg like disgaea which i love and it was just so awesome and fun and it's what introduced me to the fire emblem series I just think that, you know, Fates didn't do the child thing as well. Three Houses abandoned it, which is, to me, in my opinion, Three Houses' only fault. The only thing that can make it better. And also having Dimitri have better outcomes and more storylines. But that's just because he's my best boy and I love him. And I think that Fire Emblem Awakening, as a person that only likes happy endings... It provides me the most options for the most joy and the most fucking. A fucking. There's a lot of fucking in that game. <laughs> There's a lot of fucking in that game. And speaking of fucking, this is, you don't know where this transition is going, do you? The best Fire Emblem game is Fire Emblem Path of Radiance. I have never played a single Fire Emblem game, but Ike, who appears in that game, is voiced by the same actor that voices Kurama and Yu Yu Hakusho and in Super Smash Bros. Uh, Brawl. And, you know, when he just says, I fight for my friends. You know that that guy, that guy fucks. That was my first Fire Emblem game, and it, I agree with you, it's one of the best. It's so good. Because Ike is great. Ike is just a great person. He's a good boy. He gives off himbo vibes. I don't know if he's a himbo, but he looks like one. He's like a proto-himbo, because he predates the term. Even, oh, proto-himbo. I like that. I like that. Mm-hmm. And... He's the main character. And speaking of main characters, 
we are going to move on to Zyger, who has the greatest main character power of all time. You'll come to learn with Zyger's number seven. First off, thank you. Second, my number seven pick is the first first-person shooter on this list, uh, for me anyway, Titanfall 2. I was about to say, fuck us, I guess. <laughs> on, on my list. Wait, you put Portal 2. I, see, Portal 2 I don't really count as a first-person shooter. I count it as a puzzle platformer more than, like... Damn, Jordan. He's saying you've never played a first-person shooter. Zyger says you ain't shit. Zyger says you don't even know what a first-person shooter is. That's what he thought I, I heard him. <laughs> but no, Titanfall 2 is one of the most like technically amazing first-person shooters I have ever played. Like, I do not make video games. I'm not going to pretend to know video games. However, if you are a video game designer and you're working on a first-person shooter or just games in first-person perspective, you need to play Titanfall 2. The level design of the game, the mechanics in it, the just the sheer amount of polish that Respawn put into this game's single-player campaign is amazing. Multiple... Like, critics online will agree that Titanfall 2 is a must-play. It is one of the defining games in the first-person shooter genre because it just does everything so well. Like, there is one level in particular, like, halfway through the game that introduces, like, puzzle elements to it. And it it, it has been used before. Like, I, I, I know Respawn has shown this level off to multiple different studios. Like, hey, if this is how we designed this level... And it has inspired other games to up their level design. And we will start to see that in the coming years as more games are being developed on the Unreal Engines and uh, Respawn stepping away from Frostbite from EA, which is allowing other developers within EA to also step away from Frostbite. I know, uh, I, I believe there are rumors that Bioware's next game after Dragon Age is also stepping away from Frostbite, which is great because let them use the tools that they want. But Titanfall 2 was the stepping stone for all of this to happen and it is a game that goes underrated because a lot of people wrote it off because Titanfall 1 was an Xbox exclusive. It keeps getting fucked like through no fault of its own it got made an exclusive on the less selling console and then Titanfall 2 came out at the same time as what huge games that drowned it out? I can't even remember. Battlefield 1? It came out two weeks after Battlefield yeah. Yeah. And then two weeks before Call of Duty. Yeah. Right in the middle of a shit sandwich. Yeah, it's a game that deserves all the love that it gets and more. Like, it's always on sale. Right now, it's free on Xbox Game Pass. Everyone, do yourself a favor and play Titanfall 2's campaign. It is the greatest first-person shooter campaign I have played to date. That's real cute. That's a good rec. Yeah, that is some high praise. I know Titanfall 2 uh, level designers love grappling hooks, and a lot of level designers love Titanfall 2. Moving on to my number seven. And it's, this is not on purpose, but fuck it, it's on purpose now. My number seven is Final Fantasy VII Remake. Wow. Ooh. I think about this game every single day. I think it is a great example of uh, Square Enix getting almost everything right. Uh, Came out in 2020, Square Enix, all that jazz. But... The biggest thing about it... Wait, and- Jordan, I do want to say, hold on before you say anything. I have not played Final Fantasy VII Remake. I have been trying to hold off as long as possible because if something comes out saying it's part of a trilogy, I'd rather just wait until the whole trilogy's out. That's how I'm as a person. But Final Fantasy VII is very important to me. And 
And so I don't know how long I'll actually be able to resist, especially once part two is out. But that means I actually, I know somehow it is different than the normal Final Fantasy VII story. I have not been spoiled on how it's different. And I would like you to not spoil me on how it's different. I know it's different. You can say that it's different. Some weird shit happens, but I don't know what the weird shit is. And somehow I've avoided it. I was not going to really go into the details of the spoilers of this game. You you started like, oh, I'm spoiling all the things I talk about like 10 minutes ago. So I just wanted to say for the record. Here's the thing. The thing that I like about the game is theoretically a spoiler. Um, So I don't necessarily know how to go into detail about how I like it anymore. Therefore, I will just say that I like this game a lot and think about it every day. I think about the game a lot, too. Like... Watching Square, like, just punch themselves in the face for, like, so long with games, for them to come out and the thing that, like, everyone thought was going to be a joke, be good, was not what I was expecting from that game. I can't believe that Final Fantasy VII Remake and Death Stranding have both come out. At all. At all. Like, that. The, it's, it's 2021 and both of those games have already come out. Oh, you know what? I thought if I want to talk about this game. I think that Final Fantasy VII Remake is so great in spite of the fact that its marketing failed itself. Because I think it marketed itself as a thing that it is not. And therefore, I cannot respond to that. I really can't. And as a result, people assume that it is a thing that it is not, which therefore, it still did very well, but I still think less people played it than otherwise because of expectations of what they thought it would be, which it ended up not being uh moving forward we will go to spencer's number six my number six is story of season trio of towns it is the second harvest moon that is the story of seasons game there's that whole thing where they change names and it's the last one on the 3ds this game really did for me what i want simulation games to do which is stretch out how long the progression of the game is, right? Like, New Horizons did that a little bit better, where, like, you were working towards, like, a goal for unlocking X in that game, and, like, it made you want to play it every day. I think a lot of a lot of simulation games have a problem where once it's over, you're just like, okay, well, it's over, And everything's unlocked, so now what do I do? This was, like, very deliberate in the fact that you got used to having one town, which was, like, this cute little western town that was more like your normal Harvest Moon town. And then there was, like, island area where they were, like, island. And it was, like, also the first game that had, story of season games that had very, like, people of varying races in the game, like... There's, like, a Japanese town, and then there's the island town. And so it wasn't just, like, a town full of white people with one guy that comes who's of a different race. That's how it is in, like, what is the one I'm playing right now? In Mineral Town, yeah. Like, that town's, like, a town full of white people. There's always Kai. There's yeah, always that's what I was, I was trying to think of what who it was, but yeah, there's ambiguously Kai. tan bachelor. What is it? We don't know. He's just ambiguously tan. He works at the docks all day, so maybe it's just, like, healthy bronzer. We don't know. And and he's not there the whole time. And he's only there part-time because he's only there for the summer. A rolling stone. 
But they did, it was like the first time they really made it each area have like a culture in a way that felt like significant. Or to like have more than one area. Yeah. And so I played that game a ton and bad. So bad. I didn't play that game because that was the last game on the 3DS. And by the time that game was out, I was like, man, the 3DS just feels so damn old. I don't want to play that dinky, ugly game. It is the last game I played on the 3DS because it came out February 28th, 2017, which is just a time for a 3DS game to go die. Because the Switch came out like two days later. Persona Q2 waves. Oh, the swan song of 3DS. Yeah. Oh, rip. Those games are the ones that should be ported. The really late 3DS games that were like, nobody wants to play this on 3DS, bro. I'm waiting for the Nintendo Switch uh, port of Detective Pikachu because Nintendo already promised that. It just has to happen. Oh, that's true. Did they? That's a good point. Yeah. During the Pokemon Direct where they announced Pokemon Sleep. You guys remember that? And the Brush Teeth game? Fuck that game. That game (laughs) has never once let me catch a Pokemon. Not one fucking time have I caught a Pokemon on Pokemon Brush Your Teeth or whatever. Maybe you should brush your teeth more. Yeah, when they announced those games, they announced, oh, by the way, watch this guy's other movie, Godzilla, King of Monsters, coming to theaters now. He also was the guy in Detective Pikachu coming to Nintendo Switch with a new ending. And they're like, oh, snap, that's happening. And then it never happened. Wait, Detective Pikachu is the same guy's... Godzilla King of Monsters? One of the actors is in both movies. Uh, Justin Smith. Oh, uh, Ken Watanabe. Yeah, that's the one. He's also in The King and I, which is delightful. Zagger doesn't know what The King and I is. I just had to teach him what musicals were last year. And that one's a little too xenophobic for me to want to go back to. I just watched it. Like, literally. There's a song in that show... Which I thought it was going to be worse than it was. But there was a song in that show where the, I guess she's the queen, but she's not really. The first wife of the king has a, like, song that's, like, dunking on white people for five minutes. Oh, that's pretty cool. In a musical from 1940, from 1954 or something. And I was like, did they go back in and change this for this new production that they put on with, like, Ken Watanabe in it? And it was like, nope, that's what it was in 1954. So I was like, like, that was way different than I thought it was going to be. But yeah, no, that normally is like the cringe musical. You're like the town, the like community theater is like, we're going to do the King and I. It's like, oh, please don't. And speaking of cringe, we're going to go to Kaylee with their number six. Okay, that one was just hurtful. (laughs) I was waiting a long time for something that I could use for a transition, and that's just what was given to me. I'm sorry. No, you already said you won't give me compliments, but that doesn't mean you have to go to straight bullying. That's fine. I see how this is going to go now. Anyways, my number six choice is Stardew Valley, and you hurt my feelings. that's, That's all there is to say about it. Stardew Valley was a good game. It was one of my honorable mentions on Twitter. Yeah, when I saw it was on a mention, I was like, fuck you, Zyger. Most of Zyger's honorable mentions were ones where I was like, okay, well, that easily could have been on my top ten list, so fuck you. Stardew Valley I love because it's just, like, one dude. Yeah, I, bless his heart. He's been working on another game, and I'm just like, you're just one dude, and you're going to build a whole other game? See you in ten years, buddy. Is it Witchbrook? Right? No, that's the game that the that the publisher of Stardew Valley oh. is working on, not the dev who is just a dude. 
He actually, but like that dude has been putting out Stardew Valley updates since the game came out in 2016. Uh, as of this recording, the patch just went live on consoles and it's literally, he's calling it patch 1.5 that just has tons of new features and like t- he's been tweeting tips for people who are going to start their farms over because there's so much stuff happening. A lot of people are just starting new farms, even ones who've been using the same farm for years. There's a whole new farm type. There's a whole new farm type. Um, and again, it still has the multiplayer co-op that was added to it for free. Like, it's just a, yeah, it's just one of those great games with some indie, like, that literally one dude has just been slowly adding to for four years. It's like No Man's Sky, but smaller and without the snafu at the start. It's snafu. It's, it's a wonderful thing when something like that gets the push that it did. Stardew Valley has been extremely successful. And for someone like a single person making a game, putting all that stuff out for free, it's just... My number six is a game that originally came out on Wii U. It got ported to the Nintendo Switch, as most Wii U games have, because, let's face it, the Wii U was a failure. We can all agree on that. I loved it, but, yep, it just did not perform. I did not love it. That gamepad was terrible. I love the gamepad. It's bad. I I understand it's bad, but I love it. (laughs) But my game is Mario Kart 8 Deluxe, because it is the best Mario Kart game to date. And I went back, I haven't done it recently, uh, back when I was in California, I had access to a majority of the Mario Kart games, and we played through and back to back, just going through all the courses to see which one, like, holds up best. And honestly, Double Dash holds up really well, but Mario Kart 8 Deluxe just outshines all the other previous Mario Kart games. Like, no comparisons, like night and day. Mario Kart 8 Deluxe is just pure fun, it has in my opinion, the most wide variety of car customizations and freedom for people to pick whatever they want. And it made bikes useful, whereas Mario Kart Wii, which introduced bikes, sort of... I will only use bikes. I will only use bikes in Mario Kart Wii or Mario Kart 8, and I will only use the gamepad. Like, I use the giant game... Like, I use the entire Switch as my controller um, on 8 Deluxe. And on Wii, I would... Or on Wii U, I use the giant Wii U pad for Mario Kart uh, Kart 8. And then on Wii U, I use the wheel. I love using the wheel. If I can use the wheel, I want to use the wheel. But if I can't use the wheel, I use the giant gamepad. Yeah. That's another thing that's great about Mario Kart 8, is that it it gives you that freedom. Where in Mario Kart 8, you can buy a little wheel accessory for your Joy-Con. And you can play it that way if you really wanted to. It has... A bunch of different options. I don't like playing Mario Kart if I can't play motion controls. I'm only a good driver with motion controls. That still blows my mind every day. (laughs) And you're good at it. Do you play motion controls on Splatoon? I've never played Splatoon. Splatoon is a game that I always put on my honorable mentions because that is a fun game. Yeah, I thought Splatoon was a first-person shooter, so I was like, eh. It's, I think it's a third-person, so it's close i've never had to learn how to aim i also don't play third person shooters very it's different than a first person for sure like mechanically it feels different it's it's the whole thing but if she likes using motion controls i would say that like if i can use motion controls if you can try it with motion controls because like that's how all the japanese school kids get on after school and like decimate everyone on splatoon is with their motion controls I love them. They're just so good. Yeah, all, all the pro gaming around Splatoon is all motion controls. You will not see anyone on the Nintendo stage using the default analog controls. Everyone is using motion. All the pro players in ring play use motion. 
it it I just can't wrap my head around it. See, I don't want to hear any shit talk. Like that was the best part about the Wii U gamepad is you got a fat little thing. You don't have to buy a wheel. You it just is it's a giant motion controller. But yeah, Mario Kart 8 Deluxe, best Mario Kart game, one of the best racers in the modern decade. Mario Kart 8 is the only Mario Kart game I've bought outside of Mario Kart DS, so I'll take it. That works. And going to my number six, I have a game I assume all of us has played, but maybe not. Uh, Among Ooh. Us from Intersloth <laughs> in 2018. I think about Among Us every damn day. Among Us did the thing that I have wanted a game to do for a long time, and it is solved what I call the Mafia problem. Or the werewolf problem or anything. Because it is a clone of Mafia and Werewolf. Yeah. When you die in those games, you got nothing to do. And that's the biggest flaw of those games. Oh. You die in Mafia, you die in Werewolf, you're just sitting around. And then so the person who, the first person out every game doesn't get to play that game. And Among Us, having like little mini games as passive tasks to do seems like for some people, that's like the boring part of the game. For me, it's this passive act of play that I don't have to feel stressed about, that makes me feel like I'm contributing to everything. And it means that I can help us win, even if I'm killed early on. And that can really only be accomplished in a digital game in that way. And Intersoft figured it out in a way that, like, I'm glad that they got the random boost two years after their game came out, so that now we can get more Among Us. Because I think that's, we need more games where it's like pressure filled, but also has play. You saying something, Katie? I have never in my life won a game of Among Us by finishing all the tasks before we could get the murderer. But every single time I play, I do the tasks as fast as possible because I'm convinced this is the time. Like, I don't know how they do it. I don't know how they get me to constantly be like, I got to finish this task. I got to go. I got to go. Even though it has never, ever ended up mattering. Like, it's so beautiful. It's so genius. Like, it, you're so right. It just deserves all the praise that it's getting. I can't wait for that extra match to come later in the year. We're going to play the hell out of that game, too. And speaking of playing a hell out of this game, what is the your number six, Spencer? Uh, number five, sorry. Number five? My number five is Breath of the Wild. I love Zelda. Zelda is one of my favorite franchises. It's one of the only franchises where I've played, like, everything that's come out. But I'm, like, one of those weird people who likes the story of Breath of the Wild. Like, I enjoy that it starts off in a place where, oh, we failed. We we didn't do... Like, the heroes tried to get everything together, and they they did not get it done. And so, seeing what, like, the repercussions of that not happening... And seeing Zelda as, Zelda's always treated as, like, she's the princess in the tower who's, like, just powerful. And she, like, she just gets it done. Like, her not being able, her just being, like, wanting to do it, like, so badly and not being able to do it is, I don't know. I think it it was, like, a something that needed to happen with Zelda. I would, like, Link. I I would hope that eventually we'll get away from this idea that Link is the player avatar and like let link be a person yeah the whole like oh we don't voice the entire myth of the silent protagonist making it easier to role play a character it's like cool maybe if it's a game that like is heavily focused on customizing and role playing but not in a game where he has a name it's link and we all fucking know it and like we all know link and his backstory and yeah exactly 
the story of Breath of the Wild was great. It's a great example of the downfall of a prideful group of people. And I, I really like that. I also am one of the people that loved like item degradation in that game. It made me, me feel too. like a warrior. If it, rather, adventurer. Like Link's an adventurer. He's supposed to be crafty. He's supposed to be able to pick up whatever he got. And then it let me like experiment and like find different ways to fight people as a result and like hoard some things and not hoard other things. It was lovely. It was lovely. My only problem with item degradation is that the Master Sword should not have item degradation and I'll die on that hill. I didn't mind it not being OP, though. Take it. It's the Master Sword. It's going to degrade and break? No, it's like... By the time we get the Master Sword, I think it would be nice to give the player the option to be like, you've played this far with the item degradation, and you know what? If you don't like the item degradation and you don't want to play with it, just equip the Master Sword. And if you do like it, you can just not equip the Master Sword except for bosses. I've never had the Master Sword break on me. That's interesting. It it ran out of its power, and I had to reheal it. That's that's what its version of... That's what I'm saying. That, That is it breaking. I, on that note, I think like the thing I didn't like was the. Ch- I wish the champion weapons would have functioned like the Master Sword did, where it would like heal itself in a way. Because you were always it was always like find a, a shooting star and three other things that are like impossible to find in the world and fight one of those What's it called Lionels. Oh yeah, fight a Lionel to get the thing that drops from it to fix. The bow, or the... Does everyone else think of Lionel Richie every single time that they think of the boss Lionels? I think of Thundercats, and I think of Lionel. That's what I think of, too. They look like Thundercats. Yeah, I always feel Lionel Richie in my heart whenever I see Lionel pop up. <laughs> and he pops up, and he asks the littles of me you're looking for. And he <laughs> always, no. No. Like, I don't have to say no. I'm looking for a giant lion. You know, I forgot to mention with Spencer, but we're we're at the halfway point, y'all. We we we're at number five for everybody. We got we're feeling good. We're feeling we're feeling top ten. We're feeling top five now, and it's exciting. I, I want to know what's happening. We we got our first like gigantic game because like Mass Effect three big game, Final Fantasy VII remake big game. Neither of them is a Zelda game, you know. I think Mass Effect three is just as big as Breath of the Wild. That'll be my hot take of the episode. Ooh, I don't know, man. The world <laughs> Mass Effect three. The world changes. Like the industry, like gets all the Nintendo bias of the world when a Zelda game comes out, and then it always becomes a ten out of ten, even though it's not a ten out of ten, even though it's like a nine, maybe an eight to five. Skyward Sword. Does everyone was thinking Skyward Sword, Zyger? As soon as you say the Zelda, yeah. Oh, I was thinking Ocarina of Time. That's my hot take for the episode. Oh my god. Majora's Mask is better. Yeah, it is. Majora's Mask is my favorite Zelda game. Same, we're all good. Why would you want to play Ocarina of Time when Majora's Mask is right there? To me, that's like saying, why would you want to watch Iron Man 1 when you can watch Iron Man 2? And I'm like, no, it's just one movie. You just watch them both back to back as one long movie. I love playing Majora's Mask, but I love playing Majora's Mask directly after playing Ocarina of Time. I feel like they go together. They're like a yin-yang of games. They're like playing Persona 2 Eternal Punishment without playing Innocent Sin. Nerd. You can do it. You're just not getting everything that you could be getting out of it. And I got no great interest in here. Kaylee, what's your number five? Ooh, me. I love me. Okay, so for my number five, this one, I will give you my number five specifically for the pedants my number five is pokemon let's go eevee now essentially my my pick is pokemon let's go eevee and pikachu they're the same fucking game i don't 
I personally bought Eevee, so that's why I'm putting Eevee, but there's no the differences between Pikachu and Eevee I'm not taking into account. They're completely swappable on this list. So for the record, I'm putting Eevee, but you can easily say Pikachu. I'm not going to fight you. They're the same to me, thing to me in that respect. Eevee's a better Pokemon. Eevee's a better. But yes, I get it. Right? I mean, it's just, but in terms of game, I'm not saying let's go Eevee's an inherently better game. I just think that Eevee's cuter. And less exactly. cliche, I don't know. It's just cool. Like, and you get to customize them. Not in that game. Like, you know, in the real world of if Pokemon was real that world you'd get an eevee and then you get to pick like what 12 different types of eevee do i want like anyways the pokemon let's go games when they came out came out at a period where pokemon my first franchise my first video game my deepest nostalgic thing had been on a bit of a cold streak for me i absolutely loathed pokemon sun and moon i found them super insulting um alpha sun and alpha moon i didn't even bother buying i was just so i was like this is not fixable with an alpha omega just not ultra that's what i'm thinking of ultra an ultra can't save this it's just it's bad um i've played through x and y and they were fine black and white i didn't play the seat like i started the sequel but none of these games had really grabbed me for a couple generations and then when let's go eevee came out it was everything that i wanted i had been so sick like by the time the pokemon became 3d i wanted more than like oh it's like ds level 3d i wanted the, the fakes that have been going around for decades, like, you know, a high-res Pokemon made an Unreal and you know, that sh- I wanted to live in the Pokemon world, running free, like, Skyrim Pokemon. And obviously we're not there yet, but Let's Go Eevee was the first time that, like, nostalgia in a happy way fueled me through the game. I'm switching my Pokemon to see, like, in Let's Go Pikachu and Eevee, Pokemon finally follow you again, which to me should have been a staple since Pokemon Yellow, or at the very least, Soul Silver and Heart Gold. Like, I get very, very, very upset when a game doesn't allow Pokemon to walk behind you. I just think that it's a must-have feature at this point. I don't, I don't know why no one else gets as mad as me i would rather have like each game only has its local decks and you get pokemon behind you than i would having a full deck in a game and no pokemon behind you it is a thing i feel very passionate about and this is why in pokemon let's go eevee if you have a kangaskhan it will put you on its shoulder and it will put your eevee in its pocket next to its baby and it'll walk around with you on its shoulder and eevee in its pocket next to its baby and they're just hanging out it looks so fucking cute i want to die and if your pokemon's big enough if you want to if you've ever dreamed of riding an Arcanine, you can finally do, you know, like the shit you, when you ride the Lapras during surf, you're like, I want to do this all the time. And you finally get to. And it's just great seeing the scale of all of the Pokemon you know, compared to you in real time. It's always surprising when something's way bigger, way smaller than you thought it'd be. And it's just, it made me so happy. It took me back to a really happy place in a way that was done really well. And it just, it finally re-energized all my love for the franchise. And it made me buy Sword. And I loved Sword. And I just realized that I could treat myself to the DLC that I was saving for a special occasion. But I gotta stop doing that because now it's been how long since it came out. Damn it, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna buy it. I'm gonna play it. Because now I'm into Pokemon again. I'm stoked for the next ones. And I wanna, let's go 
Togepi and Meryl or whatever the fuck. I don't care. I want Let's Go remakes of, uh, from now on to port them to new gens. I want a Let's Go Hoenn. I want a Let's Go Sinnoh. Let's go. That's how I feel. And Let's Go games were great because in a post-Pokemon Go world, it allowed people to get a full version of the nostalgia that Pokemon Go fueled from. And uh, speaking of fuel, we're going to fuel on this podcast. Is that a good transition? Who cares? No, no it wasn't. <laughs> that was not. <laughs> we're going to move on to Zyger for Zyger's number five. You should feel bad. You did a bad job. <laughs> <laughs> My number five game has already been mentioned on this podcast. It is Overwatch. I like it for Ha-ha. different reasons. I liked it. I feel like I liked it more than you liked it. Well, yeah, you liked it five spots more than me. It's just math. Absolutely. Yeah, that's math. But Overwatch was one of the first just casually fun first-person shooters that I actually went somewhat competitive on. Like, I played the competitive mode, which is something I rarely ever touch in any online game because I'm not that competitive of a person. I've never had a high enough skill level to survive in competitive matches. But... Overwatch is one of the few games that's like, I feel like I could, and I feel like I'm great with a majority of the characters. There are a few characters in that game that I do not like, like Winston and Zarya. Damn! Do not like them. Don't like to play them. I like you, Winston. You're a cute, cute gorilla. I like them. I don't like playing as them, because I know I'm a bad Winston. I will never understand how his jump works, how his gun works, and how his shield works in conjunction with each other. On paper, the mechanics make sense, but as you're playing as him, I just it just goes all over my head, and I forget what I'm doing half the time. But a majority of the characters are great, and I love how different they all feel towards each other. Like playing as Tracer is different than playing as Mercy or any or Sombra, for example, since they're both DPS characters. But like the feel to each character, I think is unique, and I'm super excited for Overwatch Two, which will give us a campaign to actually experience these differences between the characters and i think that's a really great point like what makes overwatch so special and i think what made me a not fps player actually play it and why jordan should play with us is because overwatch basically every character is a different gameplay experience and so it's like you know if you want to run around as a giant ball we've got the hamster for you if you want to zip around shooting people we got the brit for you is she australian she's british British. Why did, I I always used to think she was Australian, and then I found out she was British, and so now I forget which one was wrong and which one was right. Junkrat and Roadhog are Australian. Are Australian, and so like yeah, you know, if you want to be a big tanky dude that like hooks people in and then blasts their face off, or if you want to be a big tanky dude that just murders people with a hammer, you know, like charges in and murders with a hammer as opposed to bringing people towards them. Like even the characters in the same class have all these subtle differences for gameplay. Like some have like lots of teleports to get around, some you know just move fast, or some like are slower but um, have these you know protect themselves from damage, and you know it's just it's so great for however well you are at aiming or like junk rat is just throwing bombs and it's just it's a good time it's a good time that you can really customize but still do multiplayer in a way that you can't really in other shooters i think the thing with overwatch that i was going to bring up last time that i forgot was it's the thing that made me understand esports yes yep same hard same hard same oh like this is something i would actually want to watch why are like yes 
I'm obsessed with Owl. That's such a good point. And I've tried to get into other esports because I love regular sports, but I've never been able to do it until Owl. There's something like because the game is so easy to understand how to play and like how the characters play, like you can watch and be like, I'm never going to be that good at it, but you understand like what they're doing while they're doing it. Whereas if I watch League, I'm like, I don't know. Like, it's pretty okay. And speaking of not knowing what's going on, this is going to make sense eventually. My number five is Telltale's Batman series. I'm counting one, this first season and second season as one complete series from 2016. And the thing that I loved about this, I'm a big fan of Batman. And they took spins on characters and turned them, twisted them in a way where I had no clue what was going on ever, which is so rare when you get new interpretations of Batman, because so often you just get the same characters over and over again. But they reimagined characters. They made Penguin a really cool character that I wanted to see more of. They did interesting things with Vicky Vale. They did interesting things with Gordon. They did interesting thing with things with Two-Face and Bruce Wayne's relationship to Two-Face before he became Two-Face. And I, I was, there was no way that I was going to not put a Telltale game on this, no matter what. So I put the thing that I thought was the best Telltale game, which is the two seasons of Batman. Telltale Games was a horribly run company. And they did a thing that I never thought would happen. They made interactive narrative games big again. They brought that to the mainstream of the games industry in a way that hadn't been done since the 80s. Okay. With like Monkey Island or something. Now with Telltale, I will admit that a season of a game is really a game. Going, which favorite episode is just like kind of pedantic to me because the entire, it's meant to be one experience, like one cohesive experience. But I will ask to press you on which season you prefer. Like you're saying seasons one and two, and that's where I'm kind of like, eh, I'm going to need you to at least say which one is your favorite, even though your rank is for both of them. So um, I'm putting both of them together because they do blend in with each other. But season two is better than season one. They learned a lot of the mistakes okay. they've made. The, the action is done better because there are like action sequences, which is really pretty rare in Telltale games. But they also they also have you interact with the villains of the world, with the other characters of the world way more often, which creates way more interesting dynamics between who Bruce Wayne is, who Batman is, and who the other villains are going to be. So yeah, Telltale Batman series. It's great. Play it on Switch. Unfortunately, Telltale went under and then came revived by some random people. So none of the people that worked on these games are getting any money or recognition for any success they get from now on. But I do know that they want you to be able to play a thing that they made. So however you will get a game in your hands, I would say use that method to play the Telltale Batman games. Amen. With that, we're going to go to Spencer's number four. Okay, my number four has been on, been talked about already, but here's why I love it. It's Fire Emblem Three Houses. Ooh! Yes! Okay! I love this game. Like, I think if you look at my list of games, a mechanic that will come out pretty quickly is I like romance in video games. Like, video games are fantasy, and we think a lot about, like, power fantasies of I'm the hero, and I've got a gun, or I've got a sword, and I can do whatever... And I'm like, but what if it was just sweet, fluffy, nice, romantic fantasy instead? We just do... You get me. You really do. I think that Three Houses... That's my complaint about Three Houses, though, is that it isn't... It needs more romance! That's my only complaint about it! Yeah, it gets away from 
the romance. And I can understand because, like, Fates was a chaotic, hot mess of... Too much, yeah, too much. Yeah, it was just, like, way too much. Like, it was just over the top with its... Yeah, and there's really only one... Like, of all the, I'm trying to think of, like, the playthroughs I've done. Like, of the playthroughs I did, there's really only one not, like, creepy romance that I did. The rest of them are all, like, it's your brother. Just joking. It's not. Yeah. And you're just, like, what are we doing with this? So, I, but what I did like about Fate was it was showing you different versions of a period of time in that thing, right? So you got to see the story from the, like, Hoshido's thing and that. And Three Houses took that concept of it and perfected it. Yeah, really quite crazy with it. It really gave you that otome, like, you've got to play it all to get the whole story, which was, like, just something that I really liked. And, like, I also got to marry a hot blonde girl who's very evil, but she's... Mine. See, for me, it was all about Camilla in Fire Emblem Fates. I just, uh, I want her to step on me and then also give me a Band-Aid because she's a mommy. That's true. <laughs> Speaking of Band-Aids, we're going to continue with this weekly patch podcast and we're going to go to Kaylee's number four. <gasps> That's me. Hey, Zyger, what's it like to burn in hell? Because you used my number four best game ever as a fucking honorable mention. That's oh, right. No. The number four best game ever is Yakuza Like a Dragon. I think that for a lot of us, we were a little hesitant to put more recent games on the list. I've been tracking the data live as we've been doing this, and it's going to make for some interesting breakdowns at the end. But Yakuza Like a Dragon, for a lifelong fan of turn-based games was one of the best RPGs I have ever played in my life. It was everything I wanted. It was a management sim and a romance sim and a turn-based battle sim. And I got to have a pet chicken and I had a homeless friend and there was every mini game was there and really good and also completely optional. And there was just humor and wit, but it also got really serious. And all of the characters were fucking adults in a video game. All of the playable characters characters were fully fledged adults not teenagers not 22 year olds acting like they're ancient a 45 year old man is like guess i gotta kick some ass i better limber up it was beautiful it was it was everything i could want in a game it was so good i just am blown away it had fashion i could use more fashion is the only, I, I could have like a dress up sim aspect and then it would be perfection that is how i feel yeah, Yakuza Like a Dragon is one of the greatest games I've ever played. And I agree with what you said. I was hesitant to put it on because it's so new and so fresh on my mind that, like, I felt like it was kind of a cheat answer. No, but- no it's that good. It's it's going to be remembered. I will never stop feeling this strongly about how good this game is because this is how I felt about the next three games on this list when I, from the moment I stopped playing them to even right now, how I feel about this game is how I feel about the next three. That is that is strong words, and I I think that's we're just going to leave it at that. that. That's that's beautiful. All Yakuza games are great. Play them all. Uh, Zagger, what's your number four? My number four is a game that came out on Wii U in 2013, but has came out again 
I think literally two days ago, Super Mario 3D World. Super Mario 3D World is the best Mario game, period. Whether it's a platformer, 2D, 3D, doesn't matter. Like, as far as Mario platformers, it is the best one. The level design is amazing. Getting the collectibles is always fun and unique. The power-ups, the just overall design of the game is amazing. It's also one of the first Mario games that, Mario games that lets you play as Rosalina, which is the best character ever. Everything from this game, from beginning to end, was just a constant, enjoyable experience. I played it with uh, two of my friends, so it was mostly three-player, but you can go up to four players. But, like, going through that with my friends and, like, going through all the levels, getting all the collectibles we need to hit whatever next objective was, and, like, backtracking, like, oh, we feel like we could have done this level better, and the small competitive competitiveness between every levels because as you play a level with friends whoever hits the flag last gets to have their name on the flag we like the small competition with each other because the game keeps track on how many flags are yours it's like oh as you beat through levels maybe someone waits for a second for everyone else to finish and then like steals the flag it's great it's fun the puzzles in it and the way that it does like it handles motion controls sound controls like light up effects it's all done masterfully. I have never seen a platformer as well designed as Mario 3D World. I how do you do the 2.5? How do you do the 2.5? I literally almost I just like how do you play the 2.5? That's what I need to know. Like I literally was playing this game like before we started recording and had to stop because I was like I'm going to spike my switch because I just keep missing jumps because of the way the world works and how you interact with it. Like, See, am I just, like, missing it? Like, <laughs> Teacher Zyger, teacher! It's one of the things where it's hard to teach someone, like, how to perceive a game, in a sense. Like, yeah, it is a 2D yeah. perspective. Like, it's in some parts of the game, you can't really move the camera angle much or rotate it around to get a better view. And, like, your depth perception is challenged, in a sense, by the game. Playing through it with my friends overcoming those challenges was part of the fun like some of us would get it right away some of us took a little bit longer and we would often die and have to redo parts i don't know it's just one of those things like you have to keep going at it kind of like a dark souls type thing where you just keep trying and eventually you start see the code like understand like oh i could jump at it this way but if i did this like if i kicked off of that wall over there instead of going what looked like the normal path i'm able to get onto this higher point which will allow me to jump even further or I forget what it's called. It's like a Z jump, where you jump a further distance, but you don't jump as high. Thing, it's like trial and error in a sense. Okay. Yeah, that is a one of only like three games in all of these that I've played in the last three days. Didn't make my list. I've only played about five minutes of it, but I get it. Hmm. And speaking of getting it, I'm gonna kind of take some steps back to something I said before. I uh, I said the top my top three games were were ranked and that's incorrect. My top four games are ranked because these are the ones that are like are deserved of the upper echelon, the highest tier of the things that I'm saying. My number four is a little game called Sonic Generations, made by Sega Team. I mean Sonic Team <laughs> by Sega in 2011. I'm gonna rant about Sonic for a little bit, just a quick little bit, quick little bit. Sonic the Hedgehog is a thing that people like to make fun of in this day these days and it's like 
making fun of Sonic and saying Sonic is bad has become the I'm saying thing because it's a cool thing to dislike this thing. This is my identity because this isn't Mario, the thing that I have a lot of biases towards. Mario games have not innovated in 15 years. No, sorry, 26 years. With that being said, Sonic Generations is the best Sonic the Hedgehog game. Are there any good Sonic 3D games? No. All Sonic 3D games are bad. If you like them, it's cool. You can like bad things. I used to like them too. They're all bad, except for Sonic Generations, as it redoes and reimagines games from every Sonic game up until that point and puts them in a place where you're the small little 2D Sonic and the the, the tall, edgy adult teenager 3D Sonic and thrusts you into that world so you can experience them in two different ways. Sonic does amazing things where its level design is... And the way that it approaches difficulty levels is the pinnacle of what makes it special and important, where you take the top route when you're going really fast, and that's super hard and really precise. You take the middle route, and that's normal mode, where you can there's some hard jumps where you can get get by okay, and you take the bottom route, which is easy mode, where you won't move as fast, but you can kind of get a feel for the world and stuff like that. And Sonic Generations does that perfectly with good representations of all the games. It takes stages from really bad games and makes them good. Which is like, I don't know, you, you polish a turd and come out with gold. I've never seen it happen before. But they turned games from Sonic 06 and made it into something that I didn't like playing. So with that alone, Sonic Generations deserves to be on this list. It is the best Sonic game. Sonic Mania is fine. But Sonic Generations is the one that doesn't get spoken about enough. So I came to rant about how much I love Sonic the Hedgehog, Tails, Miles Tails, Prower, Miles Per Hour, and Knuckles the Echidna. All the other characters are fine, I guess. That's a correct opinion about the Sonic the Hedgehog characters. Uh, I will 100% say it. So I thought Miles' name was Miles Power, like Miles Powers, and I missed the pun until very recently when someone was talking about it on Twitter. Unfortunately, I did as well. But it's fine. I didn't like Tails anyway. Like, Tails was fine. Knuckles is the best. Thank you. I didn't like when they made him dumb. I liked smart, angry Knuckles. Knuckles the Ochiha. Knuckles the Uchiha. I was just about to say, he's like Sasuke, but less douchey. Yeah, Knuckles the Uchiha is my favorite Knuckles. Not Knuckles the Himbo. Though now that I say that, Knuckles the Himbo just uh, raised a little bit in my ranks. Yeah, he's a little bit. He's always been a Himbo. He's, Knuckles fits in my eyes, and this is going to go anime for a second. As a black kid growing up in New York City, when we watched Dragon Ball Z, we assumed that Piccolo was black in our eyes. And the same thing is true for knuckles like growing up everybody liked playing as knuckles because for some reason we identified with him and claimed him as being black and i'm still doing that to this day and i i think that's pretty fair i think i'm, I'm just gonna keep claiming as such i've never heard that before yeah uh i want to go into why that's the case in this episode but eventually i will he, you can't play as sonic as knuckles in this game but he, he shows up with his cool fists and unlike sonic he doesn't chuckle he rather flex his muscles and going on to Spencer for her number three. Well, I did have one comment to that. Oh, yeah. And that was just that I truly believe that there is a direct line between Sonic Generations and the Sonic movie that came out last year being good. That's all I'm going to say. Oh, I will say uh, great. It was a great movie. Happy one year anniversary to that movie. Today. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Y'all go make me cry. Amen. All right, Spencer, take it on so I can give myself some, some tissues or something. Oh, well, this next game's going to make me cry. Ooh. The third game on my list is Dragon Age Inquisition. Aww. I like 
lore building. Like I just, that's one of the things I like about video games is that you can read like crazy amounts of stuff. Everyone hated that in Destiny 1 and I ultimately do hate that in Destiny 1, but like I was excited you could read about how all of the different tribes of that game were put together. I think Dragon Inquisition, Dragon Age Inquisition for me is the like the high watermark of that kind of a game. Like they put it in the environmental design. They put it in like the party. Like your talk, like how your party interacts with each other, like feeds into the world of the story. So you're wanting to know, hey, what is like the conflict going to be if I put Sarah yes. and Solus in my party? Like, what are those two going to talk about? You spend a lot of time just walking around, like doing what I like to call Walmart go to Walmart quests. Can you go do this? Can you just go run to Walmart and get me milk and bring it back to me because I'm too lazy to do it? Like, I didn't mind doing those quests because, like, while you were just walking around the world, like, the characters were talking to each other. And that's how you, like, stumble upon more things. Like, you'd be looking the wolves to get enough pelts for the dude of the village who's, like, trying to make blankets to keep everyone warm because he's, like, a refugee organizer. And while you're stumbling around looking for wolves to murder, you find, like, a haunted house mansion party to explore. And now all of a sudden you're, like, playing Scooby-Doo with your merry crew. And you're like, oh, man, I wish I would have had Iron Bull in my party. He would have had something great to say about all this spooky shit. Like, if I had Dorian, I bet he would have known what the symbol meant, and then maybe the game would have progressed a little bit differently. Like, it's really cool. Yeah, that, and I also think that this is probably, I don't think this is a hot take. People either like him or they hate him, but I think that the way they handled the soulless romance in that game is one of the more interesting romances in like a video game in that it's not what you think it is right i was legitimately devastated the first time oh yeah i went through it and he was like oh yeah just disappears and is yeah no everything you ever thought about your elven society is wrong and i gotta go bye and you're just like what i think it's one of the few times like the romance the actual villain works like, you're not just, oh, yeah, like, hand-wavy, hand-wavy, hand-wavy. Like, you under- like you have an understanding of why he did what he did and why he ultimately left, too. Like, I was ultimately okay with him leaving, like, once it all came together through the DLC and stuff. But, like, yeah, no, it was one of the better written romances, I think. There were a lot of really well-written romances in Dragon Age Inquisition, and I think it did it. What, what I love that Inquisition did, and I'm just going to say this, Inquisition is also my number three game, so we were just going to start talking about this again as soon as you were done. So I'm just going to mix mine in with yours, uh, because we literally both put it at number three on our list. I think one of the things that Dragon Age did well with its romances that I wish other people did is acknowledge bisexuality in a real way. I get really frustrated with games that only have heterosexual romance options, but most people are like, cool, everyone's bi. And I actually, like, 
as a bisexual person, I don't like that because then characters aren't written to be gay and they're not written to be bi. They're just written to be straight. And then you also get the like straight, but we switched the pronouns a little bit storylines. No matter, like it's so cringe. It's free pretending you did a good representation without actually doing the representing part. Like I want to see a bisexual character that like, is bisexual and like their their sexual identity impacts them and their relationship with romantic interests and things like that in a real way in the same way that like dorian does such a good job of being like we're gay in fantasy times and we're going to discuss how you know different nations respond to homosexuality in this fantasy setting during our storyline and i'm not bi i'm gay and the fact that i'm gay matters and is different and it would be weird if you could also romance me as a woman like even if you wrote a different romance it would be weird and I would be a different character because you're changing my sexuality, which is a fundamental part of my identity. Like treating sexuality like it's not fundamental to a person's identity is why I think a lot of games that have romances have the characters feel a little flat when they try to do anything outside of just like a heteronormative pairing and they try to do that awkward the same romance for every gender i guess is how it works now and i wish more games did it like dragon age where it's like these people are bi these people are gay these people are straight these people are lesbians and these people are but it was really cool and i wish they would have talked about and maybe they did if you would try to romance them solas will only romance a female elf there are race restrictions cullen will only romance a female human or elf he will not romance a dwarf or a Kunari. And Colin's character, especially coming from a place where he's one of the few characters in every game and he starts as super racist. And then by the end, you see how he's evolved and realized like the road the bigotry leads down and makes a conscious step to walk the other way. And that's really cool and a necessary thing to explore nowadays. So I think still having racial restrictions to his storyline is an interesting footnote that like says a lot about where he actually is in his development and things like that are important and interesting to explore in a fantasy setting. And I love the fact that they take that type of time and detail and put it in a lot of things tons of things i have played this game to completion over a hundred hours each each character that i've created over four times i'm about four and a half characters a hundred plus hours and every time i play through i like write down the different like combinations of party members I'm going to try to spend a lot of time with. And every single time I play through, I get a completely different like band of people with completely different banter. And all the time I spend exploring this world, somehow discovering new things, even though I'm 600 hours in, um, it all feels so different constantly. Most RPGs, I think, suffer from a lack of repayability. And that is the opposite of Dragon Age Inquisition. It's so fucking good. And you can play it so many times and still find new things. I found new places on the freaking map that I had buried under completed quests twice. Twice I thought I did every spot on the map and then was like, wait, what's this place I missed? The area with the desert at night? Oh. Which is gorgeous. You're just like, you get on your horseback and you're running on horseback through the desert at night with this giant big full moon. And I did not discover that area until my third playthrough. That whole area. The second or third for me, too. Yeah. Yeah. It's just- and it's gorgeous. It's a gorgeous, beautiful area. And you would never feel like you missed anything if you didn't go to it. Because the game has that much content. 
I also think the other thing that's important about the like romance options are there people who you can just hard not romance, right? That are like yeah. important characters. Vivian does not have any time for you. And Eliana is a lesbian, but she's also usually taken because a lot of storylines end with the Inquisitor and her hooking up or whatever. Uh, or not the Inquisitor, the, yeah, the hero of Ferelden. Yeah, if you set your world instance to that, she'll talk about the hero. Right? Yes, which is great. And if you also have your, if your hero world instance was the hero who was also a female mage, which means that she met Cullen in the original game, and she romanced Leliana after that, there will be times where Cullen and Leliana will talk about the hero of Ferelden, and Cullen will be, like, jealous that this mage that he had a crush on ended up being a romantic partner of Leliana. Like, that's the level of detail they throw into this game. Yeah, it's a wild game. I love that game. Speaking of detail, I, I love all that that just happened. That was two for one. Nobody expects the Inquisition. I wanted to make that joke for the last five minutes, and I did. God damn <laughs> it. <laughs> and since Kaylee kind of slipped in there with her number three, let's go on to Zyger with his. Okay, so my number three, it's going to start off a little weird, but it's going to be very specific, and I'll explain why. It is halo the master chief collection not because it's the collection of multiple games but because it has one game in it that is a remaster of a specific halo game that is my favorite one halo reach why isn't halo reach your favorite game on here because halo reach came out uh before the time then i'm calling this cheating bullshit but proceed for the record no for the record this is cheating bullshit but proceed if it was a remake i'd give it to you cheating bullshit but proceed Fair. Okay, fair. But yeah, Halo Reach is my favorite of the Halo games, and it got re-released in 2019 as part of the collection, but it's one of the few Halo games that takes a step away from the normal Master Chief saga, which I like Master Chief, he's fine, but he is a product of his time, where he is that male power fantasy, you're the ultimate soldier who can't die, and you're the chosen one, all of that nonsense. And that's great for what it is, but Halo Reach was the one Halo game that's like, hey, you're just another soldier, and you're in a losing war. And a lot of people who don't really know about the Halo storyline, Reach is basically the beginning of the Master Chief thing uh, saga, and anyone who plays Halo knows that the Battle of Reach is lost. Like, throughout the game, it's basically Rogue One, where you know the ending is you don't win. Everyone you interact with throughout the story either dies or goes on to die later. But it's what well, it's like as you play through, it's like you get to see the impact that the Covenant has on humanity. Like, you get to see what happens when you, a Spartan, fail, because a lot of the mainline Halo games is Master Chief doing the thing and winning, and no matter what happens, everything will turn out all right, because you're the Master Chief. But this was the first game that's made the players step back and realize, like, hey, not everything is all happy with Master Chief. A lot of people will die. This is what happens when humanity loses the war. Like, a realization, like, hey, not everything is great, and this power fantasy that we have been experiencing the past couple years is what it is. It's just a power fantasy. This is the realistic aspect of this human covenant war. And it's one of the first games that like gives you a team that you have to rely on. You're not a lone soldier anymore. And one of the first lines spoken in the game is uh, the captain of the team telling you, the player, hey, I saw your record. You are a lone wolf type. Cut that shit out. Right now you're a part of Noble Six. 
we're a team. We do everything by the book together. We will either live or die together. And throughout the game, you will watch all uh, spoilers for this game, but you watch basically everyone on your team die except one person who leads lives for a story reason later in a different Halo game. I have a question about this game. Yes. Is Halo the Master Chief Collection the one that's still broken to this day? No, it's so it launched broken. Or was it just broken for a really long time? It was broken for a long time. Like a long time, right? A long time, yeah. So I just want to make sure that your number three game of all time is the one that was broken for like a really long time, right? For like half the decade. Absolutely. Okay, just making sure that you're picking the game that was super duper famously broken. Just, okay. I'm not going to die. It was absolutely broken at launch and... For the first, I would say, two years, it was... This is the type of shit I expect from a Halo fanboy. I'm just going to throw that out there. A person that's a big fan of Halo, I expect to be like, I mean, yeah, it was broken for half a decade, but come on. Third best game ever. But they fixed a majority of it. They're adding so much content. I I don't know if you saw the (laughs) news cycles. Halo 3 has a new map. It came out six years ago. No, no, no. Halo 7. No, the collection. Yeah, the collection came out like six years ago. Seven. Yeah, seven years ago. But like, with all they're doing with the Master Chief Collection, there's constant updates, there's new armors, they added skins and weapon types and game types into the game that hasn't been in a Halo game before, and it's 343's learning tool on how to make a good Halo game, which hopefully they pull into Infinite. But Halo Reach, as far as like any of the Halo games is the best in terms of gameplay and story and just experiencing the universe of Halo without the power fantasy that is Master Chief. Okay, I'll stop bullying you for liking Halo, but this entry is still bullshit. Okay. I got it. Hit me with your number three, Jordan. My number three is the only game I've played for more than 10 hours this week. Oh. That game is Beat Saber. For the VR platforms. It came out in 2018, developed by Beat Games. Beat Saber and VR in general just gets a bad rap because it feels expensive and it is a failure of the game's industry marketing. Beat Saber is not a failure. Beat Saber is extremely successful. But games industry like positioned it as like the next big thing. Everything's changed and it's not quite there yet. And games isn't necessarily the best place, the best thing to do on VR. But while there are a lot of amazing indie games on VR. Beat Saber is one of them and the one that stands true and the one that kind of everyone with VR tells you to play and for a reason. Like I was a big DDR kid. I would go to Chinatown Fair in New York City in the early 2000s and while a bunch of people around me were playing, you know, fighting games, Street Fighter, Third Strike, Kagan Resistance Game 2, all those games, I was like watching the sweaty people uh, get like their slimy hands on the bars on DDR and like go to town on DDR. And I was like, oh, I want to be like that. And I became a DDR kid. And DDR isn't a thing anymore. Thank you. I miss DDR constantly. When I was talking about closing your eyes and seeing Tetris blocks falling, what I was really envisioning is when I would play DDR so much that when I would close my eyes, I would just see DDR arrows falling. I had DDR Extreme 2 was my favorite, BT Dobbs. Mine's was DDR Max 2, but I get you. But the only game that's ever given me the same feeling that I got when playing DDR is Beat Saber. Beat Saber does it. It just, I can see, I can close my eyes right now, stick my arms out and see those little cubes coming at me as I'm trying to slash them to the beats of music that I'm playing. This week I just downloaded the Linkin Park 
a track list. And yeah, God, that's it's hard. It's hard and it beats me up. But Beat Saber is like gonna go down as one of my favorite games of all time because it it's like the aha moment. It's like learning how to play games again. It's it's that child joy that I got playing video games like DDR that I never thought I'd get again. And Beat Saber gave it to me. And I'll always appreciate it for that. I love that. It's so cumbersome pulling out my PlayStation VR, but nothing makes me want to take the time to get it hooked to the fuck up than my deep desire to play Beat Saber. I've only done it at like conventions or like when I finally hooked up my VR for friends to play like two New Years ago and Beat Saber was new. And blessing, um, Adelier actually logged into his uh, PlayStation account on our PlayStation because he had Beat Saber so that we can all play, play it. And it's it's great. It's super fun. And I I want DDR to make a rock star slash guitar hero or sorry, rock band slash guitar hero comeback because I just want to have uh, uh, the two inch foam DDR pad I had in middle school to come like a new one that's wireless and works with my PS5 and you can buy like DLC packs of like whole albums of your favorite emo songs from the mid 2000s and then you can DDR to them like I just I, I want it so badly I make I will give it so much money I promise I miss it so much and I don't think I'm gonna get it again but but Beat Saber is a fight enough now moving on we're going to go to, oh, it's the top two for everybody. This is like, yeah. it's been a long journey, y'all. Yeah, this is real now. But let's go to Spencer. What's your number two pick? My number two pick is Animal Crossing New Leaf. Animal Crossing is a deeply weird game. You wouldn't know it from New Horizons. They polished off all of the weird of it. I guess not. You're still talking to animals on an island. But Animal Crossing New Leaf feels like the like perfect combination of quality of life things that they gave you, especially after the giant update. I want I want to see make sure I know when that update came out. It came out in 2016. So the giant update that came out 3 years after that game was out to add amiibo into the game like that gave you some quality of life stuff and npcs in that game there's no isabel oh wow without animal crossing new leaf that's the first time she shows up that's cool she's really popped up there quick hasn't she yeah she became like a super fan favorite she deserves it yeah she's the best and yeah i just feel like it's it's the best if they like people There are some people who think it's just, like, slightly better than the last one, but I would argue that, like, being the mayor, like, you're the mayor of the town, so it, like, makes, like, sense why you get to make all the decisions, because you're the mayor, so that's what mayors do. They, like, run tiny little towns, and, like, you have (laughs) two areas, like, you have a whole street that you can just go to, and there's, like, a clothing shop. And the Able Sisters is on that street. And there's, like, a place where you can get your hair redone called Shampoodles. And, like... Okay, that's pretty good. Yeah, they all had, like, all the... It had so many more NPCs and, like, places you could go. And I don't know why it made a world with animals, living with animals, feel more real. But it did. Like, it does. And it took advantage of, like, weird... Like, quirks of the 3DS, like, Street Pass. Do you guys remember what that was? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Guess I remember Street Pass. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm a cool just gamer. asking. Uh, Street Pass, like it would let you use Street Pass to like be able to view other people's houses. It would just like show up in your happy home showcase, and you could just be like. I'm going to order this furniture from the catalog now because I can see it and it'll come to my house. So I don't have to wait for it to show up in like Nookling's house or whatever, right? Like Nookling Junction. The other one it did was the 3DS used to track how much you walked around like with it and give you like play coins for like how much you walked around with your 3DS and then you could use those to buy fortune cookies, which gave you all kinds of cool Nintendo items. Like you could have like the entire suit from Metroid was one of them. And there's like a master sword that you would pull out of like a stone and it would play. Like it was just like all this cool stuff that was in that game that gave it such like personality and made it so like weird. Like one of the things you would dig up are these like statues that, I don't know what are they, they're the gyroids is what they're called. But they're just like these weird statues that have big empty eyes. But like, there's a bunch of different kinds of them. It was just another thing to collect and like have around and be weird. And I feel like Animal Crossing is at its best when it's weird. Ain't that a, ain't that a saying? Everything's at its best when it's weird. I do like that. Moving on to things that Kaylee likes, let's go to see <gasps> Kaylee's number two. Oh, shit. So my number two was really hard because it was between two very close games. But I decided to go with Persona 5 Royal. Now, to decide between Persona 5 Vanilla and Persona 5 Royal was a little bit harder than it would appear on the surface. Because I think if you're asking what game has better gameplay, it's Persona 5 Royal hands down. And that's what ended up taking it for me. But I feel like Persona 5 Vanilla has a tighter story. And my one critique of Persona 5 Royal is that in Persona 5, Shido as a villain was terrifying. And in Persona 5 Royal, Shido as a villain felt like a weird side plot that got tied into the main intri- intriguing parts at the last minute. And then he became like a mid-boss. And I felt like it was a disservice to the narrative. Like, I didn't, I liked the additional characters, but I didn't like the, what they came at the expense of. I did miss how tight the story was. It was a real good emotional roller coaster. A hundred hours flew the fuck by because it just, it hits the ground running, unlike most JRPGs, and it doesn't fucking stop. But Persona 5 Royal does a better job of cleaning up the puzzles and the gameplay and making the parts of the game that did kind of lag feel so breezy. And so if somebody who'd never played either asked me which one to play, I would probably tell them to play Persona 5 Royal. And that tells me that it belongs on this list. But I love Persona games, and I think the Persona 5 games are just such Again, gameplay-wise, they're just, they're there. They're where I want to be. I would like to bring back some things that we haven't really seen done well since Persona 3. Like just having more varied confidants from, that's not all students or your party members. uh, But like really varied, weird, like old couple at the library and little girl by the shrine and fox in the woods and just shit like that again. That's my only real criticism with the game. But it's perfect, and I love it. And Persona's amazing. It's stylish. It's got amazing music. All the mini games are fun. 
A lot of the relationships are good. Huge, huge asterisk with how they handle LGBT depictions and huge, huge asterisk for how they handle adult minor relationships. But that asterisk is both of those asterisks really are just examples of Japanese culture as a whole and are bad, but are bad because I feel like what the Persona series does well is it really depicts Japanese culture, like present pop culture out of like where they're at culturally in a really real way. This is what students in Japan are like now, not like in the 90s when you were like the manga that you like, Americans. Like it, it does a better job of being a little bit more realistic in that way, but that also highlights, in ways that Yakuza actually does really well too, the like things that they could work on because all cultures have things they could work on. And so it's hard to criticize those aspects of Persona without just criticizing how the, that entire culture has work to do like all of our cultures have work to do. And speaking of work to do, we got a little bit more left. There's only a couple more choices for all of us left, but let's go on to Zyger with your number two. So my number two and my number one game are like neck and neck, but I decided that my number two game is the game that I haven't put a lot of time in recently. And that is Minecraft. Minecraft is a game that was in development for the longest time, but came out in 2011 officially. And on its day one launch, it surprised everyone by being like a Xbox 360 exclusive. And first off, no one thought this game was ever coming to console at any point. So what it did, it was a huge shock factor. Then Microsoft came in and bought them from Notch, which Notch, I don't know if we will get to this at a later podcast, but he's not the greatest guy. Fuck Notch. Yeah. Right. Uh, I mean, Amen. Yeah, right, exactly. I'm glad we all feel that way. But the game he created goes beyond him, and I'm so glad they were able to take it away from him, in a sense. It's one of those things like, this game is the perfect embodiment of what games should be, or what certain games should be, in that it's just a free world where the player is allowed to do whatever he or she wants, and just do anything. You can build whatever you want you can build monuments you can build little houses you can build farms it's whatever you want the game to be if you want it to be an adventure game it has bosses for you to hunt down and summon and beat it has treasure maps like you could be an explorer you could fight various different enemy types you can craft and build monuments to like various different aspects of the game there is a end world that will take forever to get to and there's a final boss of the game like everything about Minecraft is amazing, and it's also just a video game version of Legos, where beyond what the game allows you to do, people can just create their own games within Minecraft. And one of the earliest inventions in Minecraft was uh, Hunger Games Minecraft, which more people will know now as Battle Royale. Minecraft was one of the first Battle Royale games because it had a game mode called Hunger Games because of the movies. But it predates PUBG. It predates that you craft, you can build your way up at the top of various trees and find chests to get items, and it's just the last player alive is the winner. I did not know about this. Holy shit. No, Minecraft is amazing. and like I've never played Minecraft. This is a world I know nothing about. I know it runs very deep, but it's just not a world I've entered. It's so deep, and on the PC especially, it's even deeper than it is on consoles, because uh, the things you can do with Redstone is just insane. 
there's a Kotaku article about someone who recreated a Game Boy Advance using Redstone, and there is a playable Pokemon uh, Fire Red in Minecraft that you could legitimately just press like A, B, play Pokemon within Minecraft. What the fuck? Minecraft has a built-in like computer system with the Redstone, so you could create games within Minecraft if you know how use the redstone tools and whatnot and it's amazing and microsoft has done such a great job with supporting this game it's on every platform they've started doing uh, school systems in minecraft where they will have classes set up throughout all the country that teach kids the fundamental tools of minecraft and what they can do with this as a building tool more so than what they can do with it as a game and there's like this whole I don't know if, uh, if it's still going on because of COVID recently, but there was this whole class in uh, California that was just teaching kids how to use Redstone and how it goes with like, computing knowledge and the systems around that. And kids were like creating code within Minecraft. And amazing to see this game be used as a tool beyond that of a game. And a lot of people during COVID have used it as a teaching tool where they would create uh, Rome and whatnot. And like kids would go on virtual field trips within Minecraft. And it's so cool. Microsoft gives out all the educational tools for free to almost any school that will ask for it. And it's really cool to see what this game does beyond the realm of games. Minecraft is lovely. It's also one of like, the best-selling games of all time. Yes, low-key. Yeah, it's the biggest game of all time, and um, it deserves it as a game separate from its creator. And I've, I've seen those classes being taught before at this college I used to work in. Students just love being able to find education the thing that they already love and that's like a thing that's new to this generation of youth and it's like beautiful that they can get that and speaking of beautiful i'm gonna tell y'all a story as we lead into my number two i'm ready so if you were following the weekly patch on twitter you might have seen me talk or hint at a game that would be on my list. And I referred <gasps> to this game as the greatest fighting game of all time. Yes! And he responded with kind of a somewhat joke tweet saying, PlayStation All-Stars Battle Royales. How dare you? And there is a connection between my game and this game. You see, there is a game designer, the lead game designer of PlayStation All-Stars Battle Royale, and his name is Seth Killian. Now, Seth Killian got his first... Uh, job in games as the uh, special combat advisor for Capcom. He came from the fighting game community, was a old school like player and all that jazz. If this game's a joke entry, I swear to God. Okay, I- I'm curious where you're going with this, but I just had an idea of what game you might put, and I was like, I swear to God, if you put this game. Okay, keep going. I don't know what you could be talking about. I know. I hope you don't. Okay. So one game that he was instrumental in. Not only like advising, but also create helping create in the first place is my favorite fighting game of all time, Mall vs. Capcom 3, or Ultimate Mall vs. Capcom 3. Ooh, that's a good one. A game that I play every week and I just go into training mode and just explore. Really? It's like if, if a. If a fighting game could be a... I did not know this about you. Every single week. If a fighting game was a sandbox game, this was that is what Ultimate Marvel vs. Capcom 3 is. It is like the true expression of self within a fighting game. Where the gameplay and characters allow you for such personal expression 
which isn't often seen in other games as well, as hard as developers try to get that, where it's actually perfect. Like, I have no complaints about it. There are things I don't like. There are things that I, like, personally want, but that's because it's I'm so into it. And, you know, when you... When you find yourself attached to the fighting game community, a lot of people say your favorite game is going to be the game that makes you want to compete. And that's exactly what happened here. Ultimate Marvel vs. Capcom 3 was the game that made me like get up off my ass in college, take the Metro North down to New York City, and go to locals for several months until my job prevented me from doing that any further. And you know what? I was like, I was good. I was good. And I still am. Great, actually. Um, I just, I can't express how much I love this game. How I truly feel like it was a game that, like, had a wave of... I loved it for having Okami in it. Just solely for having Okami in it. I was like, you can do whatever the fuck you want. Thank you. And with the art style, the Marvel, I liked Marvel vs. Capcom 3's art style. I love Marvel vs. Capcom 2 because you could add the sprites individually. And my ex made a Sagat that was all, like, black and white and red. And he looked like, like an evil matrix villain and uh, his name was sagat with like an at sign instead of an a um or like glojo which is a joe higurashi if you switch the color black for lime green so it looks like he's radioactive you get a good glojo going you're thinking of cvs too but i also love that game oh yes yes that is what i'm thinking of. that was great um but in terms of non like not spritey but like moving on to the new style i think marvel vs. Capcom really sold it I'm a sucker for a good cell shading comic booky fat strokes. It was like the second best looking fighting game of that generation. What's the first? It still holds up probably King of Fighters 13, but I it, it depends on whether you consider Guilty Gear Xer to be a part of that generation. I thought you were going to say Guilty Gear, not going to lie. Like to I thought you were going to say Guilty Gear, but still good answer. When you said King of Fighters, I was like, fair. Both, both equally fair answers. Now, uh, Marvel, I know you're listening to us. Because, you know, who isn't, right? <laughs> I need you to play nice with Capcom so that we could get a good Marvel vs. Capcom sequel. Because, you listen. Right, oh god. We all know Marvel vs. Capcom Infinite wasn't it. And, like, rumblings is it was your fault, Marvel. Rumblings are you were a little bit difficult to work with. Maybe you didn't have the best timeline. Rumblings also are that maybe Capcom had a person in charge of fighting games that didn't do a great job sometimes rebelings are that marvel wouldn't let capcom use any of the characters that they didn't own at that moment and were trying to devalue the brands of and you could only really use the characters that had popular mcu actors and storylines oh no and those characters weren't allowed to lose fights and cutscenes. it was a mess it yeah. was a mess and so ugly so ugly you get, in Marvel vs. Capcom 3, you got to see uh, Spencer, not Spencer, um, Wesker from Resident yes! Evil throw a missile at a dog. He threw a at missile a at a dog. I would never throw a missile at a dog. He was a god dog, so, you know, Amateur Asset, it works. She was a god dog. You're correct, she was a god dog. If God was a woman, it would be Amaterasu. I'm pretty <laughs> sure that's what Ariana Grande was singing about. I just professed my love for Ultima Marvel vs. Capcom 3, and the reason that it is ordered in this way is that I needed it to be so high up on my list that when we were recording, I would, it would transition from February 14th to February 15th because I am on the East coast and it is February 15th right now as we're recording 10 years after this game debuted February 15th, 2011. Oh, that's cool. 
And with that, we are we're we're down to the final one for all of us. This is going to be big. I'm glad that I'm host because I get to go last, and that makes me cool. Damn it. Speaking of cool, stupid middle Spencer. My my number one has already been on this list. Ooh, I love this game not only for the game, but because of its development story. Like the story around the development of this game, like also makes me just so happy. And that game is Fire Emblem Awakening. The fact, like, I love that, like, Nintendo was just like, no, like, Intelligent Systems, this is it. Like, you make Fire Emblem work, or it's over. We're giving you a pretty decent budget. Go make the best Fire Emblem game that you can. And they did. Yeah. (laughs) They, like... When you look at the, like, voice actor list for both, like, the Japanese and the English one, it's, like, a who's who of, like, the voice actors. Matthew Mercer is Crom, like, everybody's dream boyfriend. Laura Bailey's in it. Spider-Man. I can't think of who voices Spider-Man. Yuri Lowenthal. Yeah, he's in it, too. He plays the, my favorite thing of Fire Emblem. Take the character that is the worst does, like, no damage, and turn him into the tank. He plays Rickon. I love that game. It has... The story is not, like, revolutionary, but it's, like, good and solid, and the Awada asks that goes along with that is just, like, a great read if you want to read about people making a video game. I really like that Awada asks specifically. Like, all of those are pretty good, but that one is my favorite. And, yeah, Fire Emblem Awakening is a game that I never thought I would have liked. It was my first Fire Emblem. Then it, like, made me have to try to play as many of them as I could easily play. Yes. I'm a huge supporter of this ranking. And shout out to Fire Emblem for being the only game to have four, three different uh, mentions in this these lists today? Three mentions, and it's been on everyone's list but yours. It's on my list twice. Yeah. It shows the fire. Oh, and some honorable mentions. And speaking of honorable, we're going to move on to Kaylee's number one. Oh! <gasps> I'm taking that as a compliment. Ha ha. That was a good one. Thank you, right? That's what it's supposed to be. Yay. But to me, not to the game. Yeah, to you. Yeah. Ha. On recording. Okay. So for my number one game, I pick a game that is very important to me that I'm pretty confident I have the most time in of any game that's not like a fidget app like Spencer was talking about earlier. This game, so I grew up mostly playing Pokemon and making people play video games so I could watch them because I've been like a gaming voyeur most of my life. And Dragon Age Inquisition was kind of the first, was actually the first adventure game, like open world adventure game I'd ever played. And was kind of like that period was the start of me transitioning from a gaming voyeur to a gamer. Because that came out at the same time as I was weaning myself off my addiction to Diablo 3 Raper of Souls. Now, the original Diablo 3, which came out in 2012, I 
played on my friend's Xbox 360, but I know I've never owned an Xbox. So that was as far as that got when it came out again in 2014 on PS4. I remembered how much I loved it. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to buy myself a Vigi game. And I bought Reaper of Souls and I put my first 600 hours into that game before I even realized what I was doing. It's just, it's a game that I constantly have to be careful. Last season, I got right back into it. I got into it with a friend of mine and we got so addicted. His wife had to have a conversation with him because we were ranked top 10 in doubles for hardcore and regular seasonal. It was ridiculous. We were just killing it. We were just playing constantly though, because it's such a, it's so soothing and addictive and fun and like if one class gets boring you switch to another like we we're playing barbarians but then i was like fuck it let's play monks and then it's just it's so fun and every class is fun mostly and honestly i love the story i was shocked like you know everyone is killable no one is safe it's actually a very 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 dark bleak game and the uh it's beautiful i love the fact that they're like no it's fully symmetric psychedelic uh the multiplayer is really seamless uh local multiplayer thank you it's just good it's just good eats and it's a great game and i fucking love it shout out to diablo my only memory of diablo is when I was a child, my mom worked at a Toys R Us, and I would always stay in the R zone, which is where all the video games. Ooh, yeah. And the the physical release for Diablo One always sat next to sat next to a game that I I actually wanted, which was Who Wants to Beat Up a Millionaire? Who Wants to Beat Up a Millionaire? <gasps> what? I love. That. Don't know what that game was about, but it was when we were getting weird games like that. And speaking of weird games, Tiger, what do you guys? You're number one. So, my number one pick is the game I probably played the most in 2018, Super Smash Bros. Ultimate for Nintendo Switch. Yeah, it came out at the end of 2018, and as I said, probably the game I played the most of in 2018. I played this game hardcore when it came out. Smash Bros. as a series has always been a game that I would always gravitate to, even growing up. One of my earliest memories of Nintendo 64 is inviting my friends over and we all playing Smash Bros. I would be the loser scrub who played Kirby and downbeat everyone so I could like smash him and hit him with a hammer once they're in the air. It was great. I always shot people with Pitt's arrows from far away and then they'd get mad at me. I was always bad with his arrows. I tried to get better, but like the whole moving them like up or down in I air. Do, I can't. I don't fuck with that. I just shoot you from far away, and then if you get close to me, I do the one where he spins his bow, and he's like da 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 da. Yep. And then you fuck off far away, and I shoot you with a bunch of arrows again, and then you're like, "God damn it, Kaylee, stop spamming me!" And I'm like, "It was. It's part of the game. It's a valid strategy." Yeah, it allows you to do it. <laughs> Why I like Smash Bros. Ultimate is similar to why I like Overwatch in that there are so many different characters and they all play similar enough that if you know one, you can pick up another character and get the basic idea. But they're also different in ways where like Joker, who's one of from Persona 5, one of the newer characters, he has this whole mechanic to himself where he will build up rage to summon Arson. And once Arson is out, he has a wide set of different moves that aren't his normal attacks, but deal so much more damage. Trying to understand like every character's certain dynamic or mechanic as you're playing through them or playing against them, it always feels fresh. Smash Ultimate has every character in all of Smash Bros. 
It has a majority of all the maps. It doesn't have all of them, sadly. It, as a collection, is what I want as a Super Smash Bros. fan since I was little. I want to play as everyone. Like Throughout all of Smash's history, I enjoy all the characters that come to it but it's like oh man i'm really sad that they uh, i'm real sad they took roy out of uh brawl i'm real sad that roy didn't come back in uh the wii u and 3ds one until later he was revealed as a dlc character like i was always sad when characters left the game and whenever a new smash game was released or announced i would be like man i wonder who's getting cut and who's getting added but when ultima's like no everyone is here it was like this can't be real it even Cloud is in it, and now soon Sephiroth. Actually, I think Sephiroth's already out, yeah. Oh, he is out. He's out and shirtless. He's out and no shirt on. It is the combination of what makes games fun and special all in one package, and it's only getting bigger. There's still more DLC characters to come. It's getting more maps, more music, more spirits. There's so much to it. And the story mode in the game, I forget what it's called off the top of my World of Light, that's what it's called. But World of Light, the end, like, chapter of that mode is the most fun I've ever had playing Smash Bros. And spoilers for World of Light, you get to play as Master Hand for the first time in Smash history. It is insane. One of the greatest moments I've ever had playing the game. But yeah, Smash Bros. Ultimate is my number one pick. Excellent. In a world where we're recording this on uh, Valentine's Day... Smash Brothers Ultimate is the largest love letter to video games. And it deserves to be in that number one spot for someone. So I'm glad Zyger did it. Because Zyger has an amazing list. Almost as good as mine. Right now it's 11.59, so it's still Valentine's Day for us. Yeah. Oh, look, it works both ways. It works for both jokes. (laughs) And while it's still Valentine's Day in some part of the world, I'm going to talk about love for a second. Uh, love is a thing that you feel. Love is a thing that you express. Love is a thing that I put into everything that I make. So it would be a crime if my number one game wouldn't be my favorite game of all time, the game that I worked on, We Should Talk. Yes! I was going to feel really bad if you didn't put your that game on there because I was going to put it on my list, but then I was like, no, I don't want to put it on my list. I know Jordan's going to put it on his, and he should bring be the one to bring it up. Oh, yeah. So, like, I'm really happy because I was like, shit, I would have put it on if you weren't going to fucking say it. Oh, yeah, it was going to be number one no matter what. So if you didn't know, we should talk as a short-form narrative game that makes you think twice about the words you choose. You are placed into a bar where you text your significant other at home while talking to the patrons in that bar, and the decisions you make as you talk to those people decide the fate of your relationship by the end of the night. The way that you interact with these people is with this groundbreaking mechanic called the Sentence Spinner where instead of choosing whole sentences as your narrative choices, you're breaking down the parts of each sentence to curate a specific thought or expression to each individual person. It's not what you say, it's how you say it. And We Should Talk was amazing because it came out and was partially developed during a pandemic. It was one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life and one of the proudest things I've ever put out in the world. It's the thing that got me, that helped get me the career that I have in games that is the reason why I've gotten some jobs, some opportunities, and it's brought me to some of my closest friends in my life that I've worked with on that game. Without We Should Talk, I would have never gotten my current job writing at Volition. Without We Should Talk, I would have never, you know, became good friends with one of my co-developers, Carol Mertz, who we then went on to, I then went on to join the Pixapop Festival organization team, and now I'm the sessions director there. We Should Talk has 
brought so much to my life. And it's a game that I, similar to this podcast, it's a thing that I wanted to see in the world. So I helped put it into the world. Oh, that was beautiful. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be who I am without that little bit of me out in the world. And I hope to bring that same energy to this podcast as we move forward. So my number one is and always will be We Should Talk. Wait, so you're trying to tell me that We Should Talk came out in 2020? Because I'm pretty sure it feels like that game came out at least three years ago in terms of my life. It came out in 2020 in March 16th. Are you shitting? It feels like a lifetime ago. That was baby pandemic. I said March 16th. I meant July. Oh, we used March. I meant to say July. <laughs> it definitely wasn't March. Okay. March was the first day we went into lockdown in March 16th here. In- March is when our Kickstarter launched. Aww. That was heavy, y'all. I'm so happy we did this. This has been a three-hour-plus podcast. We have a nice little varied list but i i took a little bit of notes and it really is a varied list of games there are only four instances of a game showing up on multiple people's lists and it is fire emblem three houses fire emblem awakening overwatch and dragon Gate age inquisition those are the only four games to show up on multiple lists which means that we all like a lot of different ish i was really like curious to see how often we would overlap each other and i was pleasantly surprised how little it happened like there were a few games like fire emblem i knew would be high on a lot of our list i was just curious to see like which fire emblems and like how high we would have them okay so this is fun and i have crunched the numbers um but i did this live while also listening to everyone's emotional stories about their number one games so bear with me if the math's a little wrong But I think that we have mathematically proven that this decade of games was great, except for 2015. Because you guys, not a single one of these games came out in 2015. We've done, so this podcast covered 10 years of video games. And we did about 40 games because I included all the repeats. So I want to do the math both ways. But for now, if both of us put Overwatch, 2016 got two points because two people picked a game from 2016. I thought it'd be more interesting to do it that way and more fair. So sometimes some games are represented more than once here for a total of 40 games across 10 years. So you would think that each year would have about four games. And that holds true for the most part. 2011, 2013, 2014, 2018 all have four games. Uh, 2012 has six and 2016 has six. Those were the two best years for gaming in our ranking 2012 and 2016 2017 had five good games though so between 2014 and 2017 it was four zero six five like you could really for some reason around 2015 was solid but specifically 2015 was zero and i find that so fascinating now 2019 and 2020 both only had three games but i think that was because we were all a little shy to go too recent and so i think that skews uh 2011 and like 2019 20 but still fascinating i'm curious if any listeners would be like my favorite game came out in 2015 what the fuck and if so what game that was i talked about disgaea 5 in my honorable mentions today that's the only one i can think of that came out in 2015 we've even talked about yeah we didn't i'm looking at the games that came out we didn't even mention any of the major games that came out that year we talked about splatoon 
Oh, yeah, Splatoon. There you go. Splatoon came out in 2015. Okay. Uh, that's the only one. We'll have people that love their Bloodborne. We'll have their Metal Gear Solid 5s. Witcher. Witcher. Yes. Witcher was ruined for me by how much I love Dragon Age Inquisition. I, I was still playing Inquisition when Witcher came out. And I, like, went straight from one to the other, and I was like, I don't want to be some dude. I want to be, like, a hot elf chick. I want to be me. I don't want to be Gerald. Gerald? <laughs> Gerald is amazing. Oh, Evolve. Oh, Dying Light. Evolve. Oh, evolve. oh, rip. Oh, I remember that. <laughs> I try not to remember that. Ouch. All right. I just really want to get that math there, and I, feel, I had to wait until Jordan said their final one before I could double check the tallies. Um, so yeah, I wanted to make sure as soon as Jordan said theirs, I was like, okay, cool. Well, twenty fifteen got no game, but I wanted to double check the rest. So yeah, zero games from us for twenty fifteen. I can't believe that. What a crazy time. You heard it here first. Twenty fifteen sucked for gaming. What a great set of varied list we have from everybody. I'm glad that it turned out the way we did. One thing I can say for sure is uh, my list was clearly the best one. But I hope you enjoyed all the lists as you listen into this podcast and learn a little bit about us as a result. As we start to slow down and reach the end of this first episode, don't forget to go on to Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star review. Five-star reviews are super important for podcasts. It helps us get visibility. It helps us get potential opportunities later down the line. Now, with that... Spencer, where can people find you on the internet? This is super easy. I'm Miss Nintendeek64, if you know where that is, what that is a reference is to. You should tell me on Twitter. You can find me as Miss Nintendeek64 on Twitch, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Perfect. Now, Kaylee, where can we find you? Quirk of Art XD on Twitter and Instagram, or if that's too much to remember, just Quirk of Art on Twitch. And Zyger, where can people find you in this vast interweb space? You can find me on any platform at Zyger1337. I'm on all platforms under that username, so it's super easy to find. If you do, if you Google the word Zyger, I'm pretty sure I'm the first thing that comes up. Second thing that comes up is the city-state in Germany. <laughs> You're more famous than the city-state. The second dig city state in Germany shots fired. We are rivals. That's the most main characters thing I've ever heard. Once again, my name is Jordan. You can find me on Twitter at Versified. That's gonna do it for this week's patch rollout. Subscribe to future patches on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. Follow the weekly patch at the weekly patch on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Or join the QA process in our Discord server. Comments, questions, or bug reports? Send them to us at hello at theweeklypatch.com. Links to all of these and more can be found in the episode patch notes below. Week 1 patch complete. Buy We Should Talk somewhere. It's on Steam. It's on Switch. It's on Xbox. It's on PlayStation.